everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of October 18th, 2022. It's fair to say it's a pretty good week, uh, but I guess when you flood us with, what is it, 18, 17, 18 titles, some of them are bound to be good. Yeah. Some of them are bound to be less so, but o- overall, I thought it was a pretty strong week, and there are some really great books this week. So what do you think, Rock? Yeah, it, it was a it was a pretty big week, uh, but there was a, there was a, a solid there was a solid four standouts that I liked, and uh, yeah, we'll be getting into it. Probably not in as uh, much detail. There there's some that I just I skim read, and so I'll be very blunt about that. I don't uh, I don't have a lot to say about some of them uh, because I just never had the time. Uh, so I will I might rely upon you for more on some of the reviews <laughs> or vice versa. I, I don't know. I was unable to read uh, all of them to the extent that I uh, liked, but there's only about two that I didn't really read. So the but uh, but yeah, I mean, what a problem to have. You know, that's a first world problem when I ran out of time to read thoroughly all 18 comic books in a single week. So life is still good, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, obviously, we don't normally cover Scooby Doo. I didn't read that one. Fables, yeah. you know, we've talked a lot about yeah. Fables. How I'm not, I'm not really a yeah. Fables guy, so I read that. And then I didn't read the Harley Quinn the animated series because I never do. Again, it's just not for me. Other than that, I read everything. But yeah, there's going to be okay. a couple of, of books here that, yeah. I, where I'm not going to have much to say, only because I just one of them in particular. It's a title that I normally really enjoy, but it just, it didn't speak to me because it's not really an interest of mine. So we'll get to that, but let's dive right in because there are a ton of books. Uh, Kicking it off with Batman, Superman, World's Finest. This is issue eight. And I got to admit that it feels like this title's been around for a lot longer than only eight issues. Uh, And that's a credit to Mark Wade. I don't say that as a complaint. I I say that to uh, compliment him on how kind of seamlessly this is integrated into the DC universe, which is interesting because it definitely feels outside, right? Because this is still uh, a Robin that's Dick Grayson. So it's not necessarily in modern continuity, although we know uh, that first arc sort of ties in with uh, the the Lazarus event, Lazarus Island event that's coming next year with the demon Nezhan, what have you. So uh, written by Mark Wade, Dan Morris, the artist, Tamara Bonvillon does the colors, Steve Wands on letters. We get uh, the continuation of the story uh, of this uh, orphan from uh, a different part of the multiverse that showed up last issue. Spec alert, if you didn't pick it up. Uh, they <laughs> kind of tongue-in-cheek give him the moniker of Boy Thunder. You know, like Robin's the Boy Wonder, this guy's Boy Thunder. and Because he kind of has these fire powers, uh, fire-based powers, pyrokinetic powers, if you will. And early on, he's sort of testing them out. And uh, there's a big kind of crackoom when he unleashes them and Robin's talking about why kind of similar to lightning or, or thunder, you know, it's, it's, you're superheating the air and then the molecules of, uh, of the air expand and it makes this big noise. Um, so I don't think that that's what his name will end up as, but, uh, he does have a, a costume because he got it from Superman and the Fortress of Solitude. That's sort of reminiscent of like a silver age Kryptonian costume with the sun, yellow sun in the middle. It's purple. It's got a green cape. Uh, the Dan Moore art's fantastic. It's the perfect aesthetic for something that feels not so far out of uh, place or wouldn't feel so far out of place in the Silver Age. It does feel modern as well. I mean, the biggest problem I have reading, going back and reading Silver Age books is kind of the corny or hokey dialogue. Um, that doesn't have – Mark Wade's scripting doesn't have that sort of aesthetic. Um, but just kind of the overall feel, the innocence of it, the um, – just the classic super heroism that's being shown here is uh, 
would be at home in that era, I think. So it's kind of marrying the best of both worlds in my mind. So uh, I'm enjoying this uh, a lot more than this issue in particular really kind of spoke to me, maybe because it is focusing on, on Superman kind of mentoring this, this young kid. Um, And yeah, it was just kind of an emotional issue. It was just a lot of fun. There are some hints that maybe this, this boy thunder had more to do with what happened to his world than we first uh, have been led to believe not in any kind of malicious way, because he definitely is suffering from some survivor's guilt, but you know, is it more than just the fact he's the one survivor of his world? You know, did his powers manifest in some way that caused it to be destroyed or, or be destroyed quicker? I mean, we just don't know, but Mark Wade's planting some seeds for that. Um, there's only one thing about the issue that I didn't like that kind of annoyed me. Um, and you probably can guess what it is, Rocky. Turn to the last page. <laughs> Uh, I was like, really? We got to go there? Yeah. Uh, well, overall, you know. overall, this was, was really strong. Yes. So uh, what yeah. do you think? Well, I, I liked it. I, I've really been enjoying Mark Wade, And so far, Mark Wade's been firing on all cylinders for me. And uh, I keep waiting for the bubble to burst. And it hasn't burst yet for me. In other words, I think it's inevitable that Mark Wade's going to write a, a DC story <laughs> that I'm, I'm palpably maybe at some point not going to like. But so far, he's firing. He, he's, he's got a perfect score. I mean, there's, I've enjoyed every, everything that he's written since he came to DC here. So I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with this. He is capable of uh, encapsulating... The, the Silver Age with modern day sensibilities is a phrase that I've said before. Others have said it. And I think that's Mark Wade in a nutshell. I love the fact that he's introducing new characters in a way that he's revitalizing DC's past. And guess what? You can revitalize DC's past without having another crisis. You simply need to introduce new characters and have it in a past story and then reference it in a future story. And I think clearly that's what he's doing here with this David character, this uh, boy Thunder. Uh, he's a... He's Superman's, he's basically Superman's first sidekick or, or one of them other than, other than within his own family of, of Kara, Supergirl, and, and ultimately going on to, to Connor and John Kent, his own son. So this is, this is actually quite good. And, and just even the callbacks, the integration of other heroes and the B and C and D list heroes like Blue Beetles shows up to help out. And, and the, the hints that, that there's more to this story of this David character from another world, from another dimension that, that, that destroyed, maybe he's, has some residual or some latent PTSD that he suffered from. Even the use of the key, the idea, it's such a classic use of the key. Thank you, Mark Wade, that, you know, the key locks up every door in Metropolis and how can that cause a crisis? Well, Mark Wade's thinking outside the box here. I mean, if you think about it, if every door was suddenly locked and we, we were locked into wherever we were, Think of the crisis that a city would have. And Mark Wade addresses that here. And that's a major crisis. And and ultimately, uh, kudos to, to young David, uh, you know, overcomes his own trauma uh, to become the to, to, to use his heat vision in a dangerous situation. Or I guess his I guess his boom powers. I don't know exactly what they are exactly. But overall, I thought just this was just very well done. Even a hint of an earlier attraction between Robin, Dick Grayson, and Supergirl. <laughs> Batman teasing Robin about, oh, did you ask her out? Because Robin and Supergirl haven't had that conversation since Supergirl lost him in time a couple issues back. So he's even respects his own continuity. Too often writers nowadays forget their own continuity. So overall, I'm very happy with this. Uh, so this was, you know, one of my, uh, out of the four for this week, this is definitely in my top four. Yeah, uh, I kind of like that idea of I, 
I mean, not that I don't like Dick and, and Barbara because it's classic, but they have so much in common, right? It makes sense. But putting them together with Kara would be so different because they come from different worlds. Their power levels are so different. I think there's something really interesting. I, when I saw that kind of hinted at here, I was really intrigued by that. The other thing I loved, the line by Kara when uh, Superman says, I, you know, I don't know what to do with David. And she kind of says – Tongue in cheek. Why don't you put him in an orphanage? <laughs> what <laughs> you know, right. Superman yeah. did to Carl, which never yeah. made sense to me, but except other than to say, yeah, it's the Silver Age. You know, like yeah. just I'm gonna, I find out I have a long lost cousin, one of the only other survivors from Krypton. I'm just going to stick her in this orphanage and forget about her. You know, again, Silver Age. But yeah, it was funny. Uh, and yeah, the thing that I nitpicked, I'll, I'll give it away. Joker shows up on the last panel as uh, working with the key. Um, which I, did you realize this was the key when he showed up last issue? Cause I did not. Cause he looks completely different. The key Remember, He had that like, like almost a keyhole shaped helmet that he always wore. He always looked ridiculous. I, he looks much more evil and menacing. I had no idea it was him. I think I actually thought it, I thought intuitively, I, th- I think I thought it was the key, but I, I don't remember him as having a key on his head for some reason. But yeah, uh, if you go look but again, I'm thinking way back to the silver age key. I don't know. He, he may have appeared sometime since the mid eighties looking more like he looks now, I just wasn't aware of it. Um, so maybe that's why I didn't realize it was him, but yeah, if you look up like silver age key, you'll see his ridiculous costume and it, it, <laughs> the helmet he wears. And it might not even be a helmet. It might be his hair. That's fashion like that. It just looks really dumb. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Dark crisis, young justice. Number five. This is the next to last uh, issue of this series. We uh, found out last issue that Mickey, Mizius, uh, Mixius Pitalik, which is um, the Mixius Pitalik that we know that always fights Superman, imp from the fifth dimension. This is his son. Uh, why he's full grown and not an imp as well, uh, don't really know. But anyway, written by Megan Fitzmartin, Laura Braga is the artist, Luis Guerrero on colors, Josh Reed on letters. Uh, I'll start with the art on this first. I thought it was really strong. Uh, the colors are nice and bright. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about kind of the the legacy or heritage of this series being that it, it's a callback to the classic era of Young Justice. Um, I've never read that stuff. I've talked about it before. So I don't have a whole lot to say about this issue in terms of how well it's working there. What I will say is that I'm intrigued by this new character and I'm intrigued by the ideas that he has about the this era, you could almost call it like the '90s era of the next generation of heroes. You know, the Tim Drake, Robin, uh, Robin, Impulse, Wonder Girl, Connell, as sort of being these legacy characters that are at some point going to replace their uh, counterparts. Um, in terms of, it was the '90s, so they had a different look. You know, like especially when you talk about Connor with his spiked leather jacket, that's just so '90s. But then all of a sudden, they got sort of put aside in the interest of uh, characters that were like, almost like biological kids of those heroes. So, so you had John Kent, right? Superman's actual son. You have Damian Wayne, Bruce Wayne's actual son. They're going to be the ones to replace. And all of a sudden the nineties the, the generation, the nineties sidekicks sort of got skipped over. I, I like that idea as uh, a story and the fact that Mickey Mixius Pitalik could sort of leverage that. Uh, and and kind of take advantage of these heroes or get them to be on his side. That, I think that's an interesting take. Um, I I do sort of wish we'd gotten there a little bit sooner, though. Um, but anyway, you may have more to say because I know you uh, have more knowledge of the Young Justice than I do. What do you think? Uh, 
I, I don't have much to say. I, I think that you uh, you said it you said it perfectly. This was very much. Uh, this whole series has been sort of like a meta series. It's sort of like speaking outside the comic book and almost like it, it, it's a little bit clever, maybe a little tropey, but kind of clever. What meta, what she's doing in terms of saying, well, they are forgotten and they, they were replaced. Let's be blunt. They young justice growing up. They've been replaced largely through, uh, because frankly, frankly, we need characters that are more diverse diversity that replaced them and and i think that the replacement was was needed and uh, and it's and it, it touches upon sort of an uncomfortable subject in certain areas of the comic book culture but it's kind of true and in many ways mixy mickey mixo patelic the son of mixo mixias patelic or whatever he he's sort of like just touching on that very sensitive comic book culture topic that we kind of don't want to go there because it's always blah 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 and it's just it can get very toxic and um but at the same time, we there, there's love for everyone, and and at the end of the day, we still love these characters. I'm I'm not I'm still not a bad. I would have preferred a different story. I'm not going to lie. This story's not for me. I would have preferred just a maybe a past story of the Young Justice to whet my appetite or to make me feel good. This sort of I didn't need to be told that. You know, I don't need to be reminded of the feelings I had, the fact that Young Justice was ignored for so long a period of time. This is just reminding me of of all the things DC did wrong with the characters. And in that respect, <laughs> I don't think, you know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, I'll do respect to Megan uh, Fitz, Fitzmartin. Uh, I didn't really need that, but I understand what she was trying to do with the story. It, I, I do think it was a little bit wonky. Uh, it didn't quite work for me overall, but I, I, res I understand what she was trying to do. And we did get to see the characters again. Although I will say that I would like to see a little bit more uh, back to the heart of uh, Young Justice. I still miss those stories, but I honestly, I hate to admit it, but I don't, I think it's one of those things is that I can't go home again. You know, I, you, yeah. sometimes you can't go home. A story's over, Young Justice, they've grown up now and I've got to put those uh stories those past stories beside unless uh, aside unless we're going to have a, a, a like a series like world's finest where we literally go back in time like mark wade did which is what frankly i wish this would have done just told us a past story but you know uh but you know she she did what she did an interesting interesting uh almost like a commentary on on the industry in terms of how it's uh treated young justice <clears throat> yeah, and there's still one issue to go, so we'll see how she she wraps it all up. But but you're right. I mean, it, this is something that's just inherently a problem with with comic characters, right? I mean, if you want to keep them sort of the same age, but they've been around for decades. You think about it; these Young Justice kids, you know, they were early to mid teens when Young Justice came out. That was 30 years ago, over 30 years ago. So if you want to talk about aging in real time, they'd be in their mid 40s. So it's like, how do you keep them, <laughs> you know, fresh and you know, DC's known for its legacy and, you know, at some point, yeah, they're going to be replaced. So it's just, it's a problem that's sort of impossible to solve. You know, it's kind of the same thing when the new 52 came around, they said, oh, DC universe is only five years old. Well, then how has Batman had, you know, Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake and Damian Wayne. <laughs> he's had four Robins in five years. Like he's burning through them like underwear. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on. We have the final issue of Batman the night. This is issue number 10. It's written by Chip Zdarsky. We have uh, art by, sorry, uh, just trying to get to it. Um, Dijon Domenico uh, does the art. John, uh, I think it's, is it John Carlo? Sorry, I'm just scrolling yeah. down to the, yeah, Car Carmine, sorry. Carmine, yeah. Dijon Domenico. And colors are by Yvonne Placencia and letters are by Pat Brosso. Um, 
and I've talked a lot about this series about how what I what my expectations were and how uh, Chip Zdarsky kind of threw those out, which is fine. I don't expect you know give the fans what they need, not necessarily what they want. I thought it was going to be broader in scope and more focused on training, and ended up being much more intimate and uh, emotional. The ending didn't really land for me. I still really enjoyed the series. Um, but the ending felt a little paint by by numbers, if I'm honest. Um, I don't think the the fi- this final issue here was is his strongest work. I think this is one of those situations where the journey, especially um, right around in the middle of the series, like right around issues like five, six, seven, was when it was at its peak. Because um, yeah, the ending was just sort of it, it wasn't anything new. It wasn't really any new information for me. It was just, but I guess that's sort of the challenge that Zdarsky had because. We know where Bruce is going to end up when he comes back from his training, right? Like that's already been established and you can't really change that. So to go back and fill in, you know, yeah, the journey, there were some unexpected twists and turns on the way, but he had to put him in that place where we all knew him to be. So maybe that's why the ending did really land for me. But overall, this was an enjoyable series. What'd you think? I, I thought that, <clears throat> I thought this series ended in a consistent manner that was frankly, uh, well, Frankly, it evolved nicely into this 10th issue. It evolved in a manner that was very consistent with Sardaski's interpretation of this had a very nice pacing, this entire 10 issues. I thought this is Sardaski's encapsulation of the high points of Bruce's training. And of course, uh, some of the constructive criticism by many a reviewer of this series in general is that, well, you know, this has been done before. We've seen this type of training that Bruce Wayne's gone before. And some of the, some of the, some of the changes that Jardaski made, some people, I, even I got mixed feelings about, for example, I'm not sure how I feel about, you know, Bruce meeting Raza Gall you know, during his training earlier, as opposed to later on when he was Batman, which is the classic Neil Adams run. Um, You know, little stuff like that. But, you know, overall, I think it does work here. A couple of things that stood out for me in this final issue is, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, is I I thought it was interesting that uh, the demon Nasa, Roz referred to Bruce as his, he was his heart, like the demon's heart, which I thought that was interesting that he referred to Bruce as the demon's heart. I thought that was interesting. I also thought it was interesting that in his memory of his parents being dead and dying in the alley, that his final, that his mother said final words to him. His mother told Bruce, I love you. And he never said anything in return because just, you know, he was, he was traumatized. And to my knowledge, and I stand to be corrected on this, but I don't recall his parents in any other iteration where they show the death scene of his parents, where his parents actually said anything to him as they died. That they, I thought they were just sort of shot dead and that was it. And so I thought that was interesting because he utilized his mother's final words as talking, using the metaphor of a song. And, you know, Sardaski clearly is going somewhere with this. And, you know, he... He sort of, sort of brought all the various pieces together. Every single one of the people that were that were the mentors and the teachers of Bruce Wayne and Anton, it it all related in some way and was referenced in some way in this tenth and final issue. And I also like the fact that it doesn't slam the door shut on other teachers or masters that they may have been trained by, that Bruce may have been trained by over the years. These were just sort of like snapshots, but it, it all had a unifying theme. And you, you, I got a strong sense at the end where he's in the bat cave that I could, I could see what Z- the, the story that Zardaski was, uh, was portraying it. And a lot more can be said, but I think overall it worked, dare I say, and, and I'm probably assuming too much, but I think this isn't a bad at all. This could end up being an evergreen title. 
I think 10 issues collected in a trade. I think this, for, for somebody who wants the essence of Bruce Wayne training to be Batman, this is going to make a nice, a good, easy to follow easy read and you're going to be caught up on the new Batman moving forward in the 21st century here in particular with Ghostmaker who's now running Batman Incorporated so I think this is probably good one gets the sense that DC probably put a lot of stock in this in this trade and fortunately with Zardaski being such a good writer it helps and he's doing a hell of a job with failsafe over in the pages of Batman and of course Marvel with Daredevil but yeah I agree I, I don't it's kind of a big deal, right? Fame, uh, not famous last words, but last words from the parents. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't think that's ever, not to my knowledge, ever been brought up before this. That's kind of a, it's kind of a big deal. Um, the argument could be made that's a bigger deal than introducing Anton, you know, Ghostmaker as someone who trained along with Bruce, which is obviously something new since, um, what is it, 2020, I guess, when Tynan created Ghostmaker. Usually I'm not much of one for retcons, but I, I don't know. I just think the character is so interesting. Um, and it makes sense that, he would be there and it makes sense that Bruce wouldn't mention him just because of the dynamic. So I love, I don't know how much Zdarsky had input. Like, was it his idea to bring in Ghostmaker there? Did he talk to Tynan about what Tynan's possible plans were? Like, I have no idea. You know, we know that Zdarsky followed uh, Tynan on Batman. So it would be an interesting question to ask Chip. Uh, but yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said. It is uh, definitely has possibilities to be an evergreen title and has possibilities to, to build more. To, so like you said, that, He's left space in there if he wants to go back or another creator wants to go back and uh, and make more changes or add more tr uh, mentors or what have you. So, hmm. uh, all right. Up next, we have Deceased War of the Undead Gods, number three, written by Tom Taylor, penciled by Trevor Hairsign, inks by Andy Lanning, colors by Rain Barreto, letters by uh, Semi, Sema Temafonte, sorry, Seda Temafonte. What do you think of this? Uh, well, first I want to give a shout out to, uh, I love Mary Marvel. Uh, <laughs> I, so I love seeing, I love that variant cover. I, yeah. I forgive me. I don't know who the artist is. It, uh, I'll look, I'll look it up real quick, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. I mean, Mary Marvel is sexy as hell. Uh, my favorite rendition of Mary Marvel is when she's wearing the black, she's wearing black and yellow. That was during the, like the, the black rain run or one of the JSA runs. She was all sexy and black. I love Mary Marvel showing a, a, a more of a devilish side. And, uh, lo and behold, we're going to actually be talking about Mary Marvel later on with uh, DCV vampires. Uh, um, but in any event here we are war of the undead gods, and uh, I, this uh, we don't get necessarily a lot of progression of the story here, but you know Tom uh, Tom Taylor here. Oops, I didn't change the. Uh, I apologize. Here we go. There we go. Uh, I didn't change the thumbnail there. My apologies. But uh, uh, we get the story of of uh, Adam Strange and Alana, his daughter Alana, and and his wife, and you know he's the. This is a guy, man caught between two worlds, Ran and Earth, and he's in the Ran-Thanagar War. Of course, Ran, uh, Thanagar's been destroyed and taken over by the undead who are possessed by the anti-life, uh, the undead anti-life, whatever you want to call it. And so it's sort of a, it's it's quite tragic to see that, you know, Adam Strange is teleported to Earth on the on the Zeta beams and he, he has to leave his wife and daughter on Ran and then he ultimately, he unfortunately, he gets to Earth and he's, right away brutalized by an undead Wonder Woman and ultimately goes back and presumably, we believe, uh, kills his, has to confront his own, kills his own wife and uh, son. It's, it's, it's really, it's really heart wrenching, but that's, that's what we expect from deceased. <laughs> and, and uh, that's a, I don't know, this, 
that's what I love about this is that there's consequences here. I like the fact that there's consequences here. I, my absolute favorite, and I'm sure this is going to be many people's favorite. I'm curious um, to, to know what you're going to say about your favorite part of this comic. But my God, Lobo, my God, Lobo, what a fantastic, I just love Lobo here. He's like, Lobo doesn't even, Lobo doesn't even care that the universe is, I don't think he cares that the universe is being attacked by a bunch of undead zombies. He doesn't give a rat's ass, but they interrupted his drink, his beer. They, they beat up. Yeah. They hurt. They, they, you know, they killed his bartender. So he's obviously pissed off. So, so what does he do? He decides to wipe them all out. (laughs) I mean, this stuff is, uh, this is just so perfect Lobo. And, and it's revealed uh, unsurprisingly that Lobo's Zarnian uh, uh, physiology appears to make him immune from possession or being uh, infected by these undead anti-life. So since he's the last Zarnian in the, in the galaxy, in, in the universe, that makes Lobo a particularly special individual, which I'm sure he's going to play some role uh, farther down the line. And this this is just so much fun. So, I mean, my God, the emotions in just one issue, you go from abject, absolute horror and tragedy and sadness with what happened to Adam Strange and his family to Lobo, which is almost fun humor crazy ridiculous violence i mean it's got it's got a little bit of everything and then in the third act there you got uh the you, you got essentially a a um, a gathering of the heroes on paradise island on, on themiscara and they're uh they're essentially uh saying i mean uh, i guess they're having a funeral for for wonder woman who uh wonder woman who they they can't bring back and uh, Ares shows up and Ares tells them and uh, tells the reader that this is far worse than we imagined because now the gods themselves have become possessed and there's this greater threat lurking out there that is sent out to all the all the universe and this greater threat is this this force by the name of Erebos or Erebus? Erebus? Yeah, Erebus, I think. Erebus. And just, I, I mean, this this was a really fantastic chapter and Hercene's art again I've become accustomed to it it's easy to sort of criticize Hercene's art but what I like about it is despite despite what it may lack from however you want to criticize it it seems to work it's I I love the consistency of I I just love the the visceral nature of it and it's just so perfectly suited for this series it's just one of those it's one of those things where you don't really the the more the more art I get from him the more I appreciate it uh uh in the context of the story here and I should I should probably be careful is that is it Harrison on every page you see oh yeah Trevor Harrison yeah he is the artist inked by Andy Lanning so, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Maybe that's why I thought in some scenes it wasn't his art because maybe it's because of Andy Lanning's inks. But uh, I thought this worked. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you about the art. Visceral is always the word I used to describe hair scene. I don't think he's, his strength is in um, emotion and faces, but he's got fantastic body language, always has. Mm-hmm. And his sense of storytelling is really fantastic. Uh, so my favorite moment uh, was probably when – Ares comes and, you know, takes a bunch of the heroes somewhere and is explaining about what the the threat of Erebos, Erebos being this primal deity who's a god kind of above the the gods of Olympus, you know, part of, uh, if you go back and look at Greek mythologies, he's like one of the 
you know, initial five gods that like create reality. So he's, he's, you know, so much higher. So spec alert, this is the first time I think he's shown up in a DC comic and who knows he could become something, you know, rivaling uh, a big bad um, at some point. So who knows? Uh, but when he takes those heroes there and he offers Oliver Queen, the bow of Apollo, and Oliver's like, ah, something off. I need to tweak it. Aries, is, you can just tell he's annoyed. He's like, you're going to tweak the bow, the bow of Apollo? Yeah, it's kind of top heavy. Okay. Okay, puny human. Tweak yeah. away. So, yeah. yeah, even though this is, um, you know, typical Tom Taylor where we do have some, some tragedy and some, you know, really poignant moments and some uh, just heavily emotional, impactful moments, there's still the humor, right? There's still... Lobo twisting the head off a, a Thanagarian warrior that's been infected. We still have those moments like Green Arrow and Ares interaction. So um, you can always count on Tom Taylor to add a little a little humor. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. <clears throat> Up next we have DC versus Vampires All Out War number four, written by Alex Packnadel and Matthew Rosenberg. Pencils, ink, and gray tone art by Pasquale Colano. Red tones by Nicola Wright. Letters by Troy Petrie. And then there is a, a backup feature that also has a limited color palette. It's, it's uh, black, white, and blue as opposed to black, white, and red like the main story. Uh, it's written by, by Matthew K. Manning. Art is by Aki Bright, lettered by Troy Petrie. Um, I'm having a bit of a hard time with this series, to be honest. And I, I don't want to point the finger at the art, but it is harder for me to follow what's going on with this limited color palette. Maybe that's on me. Maybe I'm just not paying enough attention. Um, but again, I go back to this idea of they're packing – they're trying to pack in so much of this DC versus vampire stuff into what seems like not enough space. And it, it just gets confusing. It's hard for me to tell which characters are which, um, what's going on. And, and part of it's because they look different. Some of them are infected. I can't keep track of who's a vampire and who's not. So it just ends up being really confusing because it's so, so fast-paced and maybe that's on me. And it's probably why I enjoyed the backup so much more, right? Because there's so – so many fewer characters. It's basically Jefferson Pierce, Black Lightning, going to his home, finding out that his wife and daughter aren't there. They've left a note behind, and he's going to travel to San Francisco to look for them because that's where it says they're headed in the note. Um, I enjoyed this so much better. Uh, still, You still have that sense of foreboding. You still have that sense that, yeah, this is a world that's kind of turned upside down with these vampires. But I knew who the character was, and I knew, could understand what was going on, as opposed to the main story where I, I just felt lost. Um, and that's this one more so, like this this all-out war, I've been able to sort of follow it, and I understand the broad strokes um, for the most part up to this point. But this was – and it's because there's a lot of action and people fighting and and the artwork. There's like all this lightning superimposed over some of it. It's just hard for me to tell what's going on. But again, maybe that's just my own my own shortcoming. So I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I share your sentiment, and I, I think I said the same thing last issue uh, that, that I – I, I always, it's one of those things where I don't know if I should just give myself a slap across the head and maybe it's just me and, you know, other people are understanding it and it, and it flows better for others. And, uh, but I, I have, I will say this. I actually think that this is actually a good story. I, I reread this thing twice and I still, I think I've still missed some things, but it's pretty cool. I really like Mary Marvel in it. I really like how she kicks ass. And yeah, I, I yeah. suspect that this is a better story than I realize, but I'm not getting a full appreciation for it because of the art. Uh, because I, I really do wish this was colored. 
I, I really very strongly wish this was colored because I think yeah, that it I'm would not, be. I, I want to make it clear that I don't think the art is bad. Yeah. It's uh, just it's just because of the only the three colors, it's just it's hard to tell what's going on. Yeah. It's cool. It looks cool. It yeah. looks really cool it, at it, times. It, it does. But there are yeah. times where I, I struggle with differentiating the characters. And yep. but but at the same time, I admit there was a few times where when I, you know, I, I, I stared at the panel for four or five, you know, longer than you know, a minute and then, okay, I could figure it out. And, 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 and it is there, the story is there. And uh, so it's just, it's just something to get used to. It's something to get used to. And so it's one of those things where, you know, there's a part of me that I'm a selfish bastard. I want to be able to, I want it to flow a little bit faster for me to understand it. Yet at the same time, I want to give DC some credit for thinking outside the box a little bit. DC always, at least in my, my bias view, cause I'm a BC guy. DC guy. I always think DC takes more chances than Marvel. And this is an example of that, of, you know, it is kind of DC v vampires, you know, maybe inspired to have a black, white and red, you know, all out war series. And let's do it in black, white and red and have the backup with blue because it's black. Light. You know, I mean, it's you can kind of see it's kind of cool in concept. And but in execution, I think it's hit and miss for me. But so it's hard for me. And the story, I think the story is solid. I, my personal preference, I hope when this wraps up inevitably in the main series, I hope they give a synopsis as to what all happened here, because I think I've got kind of a handle on it, but I'm not entirely clear. And uh, right now I don't, I, I didn't take notes and I would have taken notes for me to uh, more effectively articulate myself in terms of what, what happens here. Suffice to say that uh, Mary, uh, Mary Marvel really kicks some ass here. And it's very interesting that Mary Marvel in, in, in order to avoid being over, she was bitten. Young Mary Bromfield was bitten, but her immortal aspect, her Shazam self could not be possessed. So she changes in to Mary Marvel to avoid fully turning. I thought that was a pretty cool concept. I like yeah. that. And that, that plays a major, that plays a major role in the, in the progress of this story, uh, particularly when Azrael gets on the scene and, uh, and I thought it worked really well. And then at the end, I'm not entirely sure who shows up at the end, if that's supposed to be Connor or uh, I'm not entirely sure who that is. Um, but, um, and to give an example, uh, at the end of, and I think it was at, at the end of All at War number two, you and I weren't sure if it was Lex Luthor because it was a, it was black, white, and red, but it actually, yeah. it actually was, it wasn't Lex Luthor. It was Lex Luthor's suit in the body of another person because Lex Luthor's dead. He was, he died at the very beginning of the series. So it was, that was kind of confusing to us. Whereas maybe we wouldn't have been confused had it been maybe colored, but again, that's just one example. But again, I, the story here is elevated enough that, I, the jury's still out for me. I don't know if when this thing comes out in, in a trade or a hardcover, I'm gonna I'm gonna be. I don't know if I'm gonna be picking it up or not right now. It's still the jury's still out. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I feel like if they do it in a hardcover, do it in a big hardcover and fill in the gaps and put everything in you know chronological order. And I don't know, but the ma that main cover that you have up on the screen right now by Alan Qua of Mary Marvel, yeah, it's so good. I, I have a hard time between that one and the one that was on. Um, DC's War of the Undead Gods, which I said I was going to look it up. I did. It's, I uh, hope I pronounced this right. Sun, common, uh, let's see, I messed it up. Sun, Kamunaki. <laughs> K-H-A-M-U-N-A-K-I. Yeah. Kamunaki, uh, I believe, is the one that did the cover um, for the Miss Marvel for Undead Gods. And this one's Alan Qua. And they're both, yeah, they're both absolutely gorgeous. Excellent. So, yeah. 
Uh, all right, let's move on to The Flash, number 787, from writer Jeremy Adams. Fernando Passerin does the pencils, Matt Ryan on inks, Jeremy Cox on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Okay, so I love Jeremy Adams, and I love The Flash. This book was not for me <laughs> at all. <laughs> You're not a wrestling so, fan? You're not a I am not a wrestling. <laughs> I am not a, a wrestling, as my grandfather used to pronounce it. I'm not a wrestling guy at all, not even the little tiniest bit. Um I understand it's like soap opera for, you know, guys, whatever. And that's totally fine. I don't begrudge it, but I was, I, I was interested in wrestling for about five seconds in 1985 when um, it was first bursting on the scene nationally with the cartoon. <laughs> it was WWF back there and Captain Lou Albano and Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov and all those guys. But like, those were the guys, Wendy, Wendy Richter, I think. Uh, I, I think I remember watching on TV the first time, uh, Randy Macho Man Savage showed up. Um, but yeah, that was it. And th I got it out of my system over a period of like two or three months. And that was it. I never, <laughs> I have no interest at all. So I will say this about this issue. And then I'm going to go get a drink while Rocky talks about it. Um, <laughs> this art was absolutely fantastic. From the line work to the colors, all the detail Passerin put in with all the rubble and wreckage with these um uh, you know, intergalactic wrestlers wrestling in the, in the middle of uh, Central City. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. As far as the story itself, yeah, it was it was entertaining. But you know, I'm not again. I'm not really a wrestling guy, so it didn't really didn't really do much for me. Um, so, what do you think? Well, I it was fun. It, look, this was just this is a straight up fun issue this isn't really you don't we're in the middle of a dark crisis in the dc universe right now there's a lot of th lots of things going on in the dc universe and this is the flash just taking a break watching tv with his two kids and uh lo and behold they figure all of a sudden what comes up on the tv is a, what they think is a wrestling match <laughs> and it looks like it's like they're watching the wwe or wwf or whatever the old my whatever the situation might be and it ends up being an intergalactic wrestling federation and what's what i love about it is as the story progresses uh the, the way it works is that the the uh i love the, the the what jeremy adams came up with here because the the origin of this particular federation wrestling federation it's actually an illegal wrestling federation that's broadcast all over the universe and that the green lantern Corps apparently the guardians the guardians have made it illegal for them to engage in this and the the setting is uh instead of uh, wrestling at madison square garden they wrestle on planets that are about to face armageddon so that's what attracted this omega bam bam man this wrestler omega bam man to this <laughs> to basically to earth where he's wrestling where he's wrestling i don't know various people with different names he Jeremy Adams here has different names for these wrestlers with their own catchphrases. It's time to shine. And then Flash and Wally ends up realizing that this is taking place in the, in, in downtown, in, uh, <laughs> down in, in the city. And so he, central city. So he's got to go and check it out and stop it. And he ends up tag him and, uh, Omega Bam man end up tag teaming to take out another wrestler and it's uh, the way that they incorporate the fact that wrestling is always wrestling's kind of fake, but yet it isn't. So even though it's kind of fake, it's actually real. These guys put themselves through physical pain and agony to put on a great show for people. So do these people. So do these wrestlers in the in the DC multiverse here. Uh, Omega Bam Man says that they, you know, they they 
even if they get injured, they there's ways that they that they're healed and they're and there's certain rules that they go by and it's all for entertaining the multiversal masses or the universal masses that watch their show. And again, it, it's such a cool concept. And I don't think I don't think it's been done in the DC universe. The whole idea that there's an illegal wrestling federation in the DC universe that even the Guardians want to shut down and that the Green Lantern Corps would shut down if they could get a hold of, but they can't because it's it's illegal. So there's probably the equivalent of a of a multi of a multiversal uh, Vince McMahon who's organizing the Wrestling Federation for the DC Universe. I just I love that. I think it's a lot of fun, and uh, the kids love it. I mean, I say the kids, Wally's kids, Jay and Irie, they're loving it. They want to go in and get in on the action. They're watching TV. They're watching their dad wrestle. This was a fun issue, and again, uh, this is a must-read if you're a Flash fan, and for guys like us, you and I, who've been clamoring, we wanted Wally back, we wanted Linda back, we wanted the kids back, this is another example of uh, the right writer at the right time telling a great Flash story, so kudos to Bear, uh, to uh, Jeremy Adams. Oh, you're on mood. Yeah, I, I said I agree. He, Jeremy Adams is killing it on Flash. I wish they'd give him another title, to be honest. Uh, okay, up next, again, I won't have much to say about this because I'm not a Fables fan. I've never read it, but uh, it's Fables number 156, which just – we talked about it when we talked about 151, how it just kind of picked up where 150 left off 12 years ago or, or what have you. So uh, this is 156, writer-creator Bill Willingham, Mark Buckingham, co-creator Penciler, Todd Klein does the letters, Christina – Calida is the cover artist, Steve Leola on inks, and Lee Luffridge on colors. What do you think? I really like this. This will be a short and sweet one. Uh, I could talk for much longer on this, but I will keep it short. If you love fables, you're going to love this because this is Peter Pan. The, the guy at the on this, the guy on the cover is actually he's actually Peter Pan. And what Peter Pan is, he's got Tinkerbell flying around him. Peter Pan is very powerful, but in fact, Peter Pan gets all his power from Tinkerbell, and he made a deal with Tinkerbell. And the deal he made is that uh, Tinkerbell is sworn to him for all eternity. And it's only if he releases Tinkerbell, Tinkerbell will probably kill Peter Pan because she's forced into servitude to serve Peter Pan. So the only reason Peter Pan is 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 so powerful and arguably even more powerful than the adversary at one point was, who was Capetto in the original series, uh, is that she, he's powerful because of Tinkerbell. Well, he's he's now in our world with Tinkerbell. And meanwhile, we got this other woman who's sort of like this young lady who has become sort of like she's the green of the woods. She's the she's like the. You could the equivalent of like a female green arrow, uh, and she she is drawn to evil to take out evil. And what's funny about this particular issue is that she's drawn to this cafe where Peter Pan is, <laughs> and she's she's in our world where that just started to interact with the fairy tale world. And the police get involved and they arrest this woman with a bow and arrow, and she's just in there to take out Peter Pan. And not and the guys don't realize that Peter Pan, this this distinguished looking gentleman, is of course Peter Pan. Because why would you think something so absurd so there's again if you're if you're into fables you'll really get the humor on this meanwhile the the children of the big bad wolf big b wolf and snow white are getting into it, misadventures uh, as well <laughs> in the black forest and 
This is a lot of fun. Things. This is part six of twelve. So this is things are starting to build to a head here. So this Peter Pan character and Tinkerbell scenario. I'm really curious to know how bad Peter Pan's going to get. And so it's uh you know to those to do, those who are Fables fans definitely pick this up. And dare I, I encourage people who aren't to maybe give it a, give it a shot because I think it's well worth the read. Yeah, Peter Pan is a bad guy. I don't know how much I'd like that, but uh, I'm a big <laughs> Peter Pan fan. But uh, anyway, moving on, Duo number six. This is the um, the final issue of the first arc. Uh, Rocky and I have talked in the past. It's not, it hasn't been anything announced that this was a limited series. It doesn't say season one like a lot of the other Milestone titles. It's also not based on a previous Milestone property, so I'm not sure where we are with this. But it's written by Greg Pak, pencils by Koi Pham, inks by Scott Hanna, colors by Chris Sotomayor. What would you think? Uh, I thought this was a, I thought this was a good wrap up. I, I, I think every time we've reviewed this, I've asked you the same question. If this, does this, were these characters previously in the milestone universe? And you, you, you always tell me the same thing and I forget. And then, and of course, these are new characters and, and I like it. I actually thought that, uh, this, this ended, this ended how I sort of expected it to. I will point out that on the, on the cover B, of duo, it has the two lead characters, David and his wife, whose name is I forget his, his it, wife. Is it Kelly? Kelly, right? David and Kelly. They're a husband and wife team, and they basically occupy the same body. So both their minds are merged in the same body, and the body is kept alive by nanites, and they're essentially immortal. And they're essentially they are involved in. Uh, there's two. Uh, there's there's a group of immortals called the Immutables that are actually genuinely immortal and have been sort of protecting the earth for centuries. And they are fearful of duo because they think it might be a, it might not be a good thing that there's a, there's a human being, another human being has obtained immortality because it might be a bad thing in the long run. Meanwhile, there's a corporate type, uh, there's a corporate guru who, uh, who has, has dreams of becoming immortal and utilizing it, of course, for his own nefarious militaristic purposes. And all three of these uh, forces come to a head in this issue. And and while this is all going on, there's a battle within the minds of both uh, David and Kelly as they decide which one of them is going to have control over over duo over the actual full the, the full body as they decide to do battle against uh, the immutables and this. Uh, and uh, the the lead villain whose name eludes me at the moment, uh, Doctor Tinker. Doctor Tinker, thank you, Doctor Tinker. Then then there's then there's Marius who leads the Immutables, and right. it ultimately ends with Marius of the Immutables ga- uh, choosing to have faith in Duo and believing to put his faith in them, and he sacrifices himself uh, by uh, by seeing to it that the that uh that these other forces are kept out of our universe and and having trusted duo and the the rest of his immutables will will save the day while this dr tinker agrees to be a, a temporary ally uh, until uh, in in overcoming this more powerful force that takes over uh that attempts to take over in this issue and uh, i think this is a this is a pretty good uh, I think this is a pretty good uh, introduction to these characters. These these first, I think Greg uh, Greg Pack has done a pretty good job of these first six issues. 
to get a full story with good character work in just six issues nowadays, I think is it's sometimes it's hard to find. And Greg Pak has done a pretty good job here. His character work is pretty good. I, I particularly love how David and Kelly, his husband and wife, they don't see eye to eye on everything. And it shows in how they handle each other. You can almost tell which one is in control of the body just by the actions of Duo. And that's what I really like. There's a, there's a distinction between David and Kelly and uh, I thought the villains were – the villain was maybe a little tropey, the corporate villain type. I thought that maybe was overplayed a little bit. But it, it works. And plus, it was kind of – it was believable. And how you got these these forces. You got these existing immortals called the immu- uh, immutables. You got duo that's become immortal through science. And then you got the corporate type that wants to control it. And then you got this other alien force that's coming down. So all these – there's actually four moving parts here, four forces. I thought overall, I thought it worked pretty good. And I um, – I, it's unfortunate that maybe this series didn't have the hook that – in order to get it more attention because I think it deserves more attention that it's gotten. And I think it's a nice addition to the uh, milestone universe. I would have liked, I would like to see David and Kelly make an appearance in, in the rest of the milestone universe. And I would love to see a crossover into some of, uh, into maybe uh, icon and rocket and even static. Yeah, I agree. I, I, now that it's kind of been established who these characters are and uh, what the supporting cast is, protagonist, antagonist, wouldn't be bad to kind of, grounded a little more in the monster universe by having some crossover. Um, so it's, I think it's a good start with, with a first arc and duo is an interesting character inherently conflict built in, right? Like, even though, like mm-hmm. you mentioned, these are pe- uh, two people sharing the same body that love each other, husband and wife, they don't agree on everything. They're, some things very, very basic, you know, David seems to be a little bit more passive and Kelly seems to be a little bit more aggressive, you know, wanting to t- kind of take the fight to these people that are threatening them. So, and that's fine. We're all different individuals. The problem is when you're sharing as an individual, sharing a body with somebody else, those conflicts can become uh, a lot harder to, uh, to work out. So uh, it's a good start. Uh, All right. Up next, we have the final issue of Aquaman Andromeda written by Ram V art is by Christian Ward letters by Aditya Bidikar Oh my God, the art here is so fantastic. It's so good. The best art of the series, uh, especially with the colors that Christian Ward is bringing. Uh, This Aquaman who looks much more alien, if you will. Uh, So I really love that. I also thought it was paced really, really well. I talked when we did the first issue about how I felt it was, uh, it felt like it pulled a lot from um, other sci-fi stories that I've read before, specifically The Sphere from Michael Crichton that continues that feeling uh, it kind of got away from it a little bit in the second issue, but then it ends up being very similar in a lot of ways to, to that story. And so for me, I kept comparing it in my mind. Uh, I couldn't help, but do so. Um, and I also thought the pacing was a little, a little wonky. So I don't know. I, I'm, I've been a fan of Rom V in the past, but I'm, I'm starting to wonder if his style of storytelling doesn't work better on independent stuff rather than on, established characters like Batman or, or Aquaman, because I haven't enjoyed his stuff anywhere near as much, uh, his more recent stuff. Um, and maybe it's because he's got that framework or that structure. I'm not, I'm not really sure. So ultimately this and just ended up being okay for me. I don't think it's a, a story I would go back to and reread or a story out that's even going to be memorable for me. So, uh, other than the art by CJ Ward, which, you know, if I ever see any of this art anywhere, I'll recognize it immediately as the series, uh, and how fantastic the art was. Um, 
I almost feel like maybe just because Rom V in, in my mind, it can get the scripting can get a little, I hate to use the word pretentious, but maybe a little too complicated is a better word, uh, a little overwrought at times. Um, so I almost think, man, if, if I just had the art telling the story, I mean, I don't probably don't need all these words. Um, so anyway, what did you think? Well, I, I think that the, the, I think the story was actually was really good. The story really uh, came into uh, well, as it it came into fruition in this final issue, as it as it of, of course it should. And I thought it really I thought it worked well, and all the character arcs came together because there was a lot of similarities between one of the the, the lead uh, uh, scientists, her childhood and her relationship with her father could very easily be juxtaposed against Arthur's relationship with his own father as it played out in this issue. We learn more about the history of this ship, which is sort of tied into ancient Atlantis, uh, ancient Atlantis mythology and lore and history, and. I, I thought it was. I thought it. I thought it really did work, and um, it was interesting. If I didn't know better, I thought I, at different times. I thought maybe it was Christopher Priest writing it because there was that black. Every now and then there would be like a black space, a black panel with uh, with the name on it. But uh, uh, in any event, I I, I thought it was uh, it. I this the, each issue has been very very long, and it is interesting because I I don't know if if this. This was, I think this could have been truncated, but at the same time, if you truncate it, you, we're not going to get that beautiful Christian Ward art. And so to be on, like to, to cut to my chase, and I, I was trying to lead to a compliment here because and I'm, not, I'm, I'm trying to give a good, a, a very good compliment in that so far as I'm glad that the story was extended. Some of the scenes I thought extended longer than they needed to, but I didn't care because we got Christian Ward's art. And that's what works so well on this. And because the, the visuals here are just, they really are absolutely beautiful. And unfortunately, I'm only showing a page at a time. So the, some of the more beautiful double page spreads, we don't get a true appreciation of here at, on the screen. But uh, one, one, of the, one of the criticisms though I have is it, it, felt, it did end abruptly. It really did feel like it ended abruptly. Everything was resolved. But it just felt like it ended abruptly. And for all those gorgeous visuals that we got, I didn't think we needed uh, – it shouldn't have I, – I was – it shouldn't have had that feeling of ending as abruptly as it did. It was just sort of like – I just wanted to – I felt like I was on a higher visually and then all of a sudden, oh, it's over? And then, yeah, it's done and just as the end. And it just – you know, I, I felt like – I almost wanted to be on a slide and slowly slide off this beautiful, uh, beautifully looking uh, slide. But uh, in any event, I'm, I'm butchering a metaphor there. But uh, in any event, I, I, it, as a hardcover, I'm definitely going to be checking out the hardcover. I might buy it. I'm going to see what it looks like in hardcover form because I think that this could really be a visual feast for the senses. Yeah, there's no doubt the art is uh, is gorgeous. So... Uh, all right, up next, GCPD, The Blue Wall, number one. This is written by John Ridley, drawn by Stefano Rafali, colored by Brad Anderson, lettered by Ariana Mayer. Um, yeah, this is for, for fans of procedurals that, you know, GCPD um, is what immediately comes to mind by Greg Rucka uh, and definitely focusing on Rene Montoya as the, the commissioner and some, some rookie cops in their first days on the job. What would you think? I'm gonna to have to have you review it because I never got I never got a chance to read all of it. So gotcha. Uh, okay, I actually this is one that I actually don't have 
much to say about either. It's, it's just too soon to say. This is a very political book in terms of it's all about the interaction between the characters. Uh, it's also meta in a lot of ways because John Ridley, he, you know, as a writer of color, he's definitely a person that has something to say about the world. You know, um, when we reviewed the other history of the DC universe, that's all focused on, you know, the other history in terms of the history of the DC universe through the eyes of people, you know, of color or people who are marginalized. They're, they're not kind of the um, straight white superheroes that you always sort of see their perspective. We're getting the history of the DC universe from others. Now we're getting the kind of the, the GCPD, kind of the real world, the grit, what's behind it. He's dealing with ideas of, you know, police brutality and uh, the, the juxtaposition between protect and serve uh, as opposed to, to police brutality that's been in the headlines, especially in the U.S., uh, you know, for the last couple of years. So this is a very real book to the point that there is a a warning, like a trigger warning on the first page uh, in regards to language that's being used. Um, and it says, hey, you know, there's language that's could be some people could feel as racially offensive in nature. It might not be suitable for all age groups. This is how people talk, you know, in this time period, it's for context, that sort of thing. So all that to say, this is a very real book. Um, And so I could see some people not caring for it. You know, does, does a book that's so overtly dealing with kind of real life politics and societal issues, does that belong in the fantastical DC universe? Well, the argument could be made, you know, one way or the other, I can see both sides of it. Um, So, is it a well-constructed comic? Yes. The art's fantastic. It's paced very, very well. It is interesting, but I, it's too hard for me to judge one way or the other off of just this one issue because I don't really know where it's going other than it feels like a very realistic portrayal of, of police officers and of a police commissioner and of a city that could, you could argue is, is crime-ridden. So it's a very real book and a very grounded book. But if you're one of those people that reads comics for escapism, this may not be for you. So I'm I'm, reser- I'm reserving judgment. I am sort of interested in if John Ridley can write something that doesn't pull from the real world because he is such a talented writer. I, that's obviously not where his interests lie, and I he probably never would choose to. Um, but but I, I, it would be so interesting to see him write something that isn't like a metaphor for something else. Um, it might not work because it might not be that, again, that's just not the way that he works. He's always going to pull from from the real world and put his own spin on it. Um, but it's just something that got me thinking uh, about that because this is so real. There's so much realism in this. So. Yeah. Just as a quick aside, I, I find it interesting and almost a, kind of I have mixed feelings about Rene Montoya being the commissioner of, of Gotham City. It seems it, it just seems like. She's. I like her better as the question, quite frankly, and I'm not alone on that. But I, I get that they want to, you know, for whatever reason. I, I get the strong sense that the powers that be want to replace Commissioner Gordon as commissioner, and Renee Montoya sort of uh, checks off all the right boxes. And she's a well-known character. I just think she would gain more mileage as as the question. She's more interesting because I, I, I look at it from a superhero angle as opposed to a real life angle. Like I don't know if I want a real life. So, you know, but then look, I enjoyed Gotham Central, but I'm not getting the sense that this is Gotham Central. And and if they wanted to do Gotham Central, then why don't you call it Gotham Central? 
Like this is to, to me the same thing, isn't it? Like why call it something uh, different? Well, it, like because I, I, I think it is. I think it is really dealing with the. It seems to be based on what we get in the first issue. Seems to be a little bit of a contrast between somebody who has been a cop for a really long time and has kind of kind of seen it all and is cynical and jaded. That being Renee Montoya and these rookies that come on board and are you know joining the blue wall to protect Gotham. So I think that's why they chose it. Yeah. If it is the, really the narrative of Montoya and these rookies, I can see why they wouldn't call it Gotham Central. But I do agree with you on that standpoint of if that's what they're trying to do, they should have called it Gotham Central. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. As far as checking the boxes, that's interesting, right? Because both in terms of real world editorial, hey, let's give us a series to uh, you know a female uh, lesbian Latina because we can show we're diverse it also works the other way in that after the events of the joker war the powers that be that make the decision in gotham city are doing the exact same thing they're checking you got a question are they just is renee montoya being promoted to check the boxes right hey we're gotham city and we're we're making progress right we're more progressive it's not the old boys network look we have a gay latina female you know commissioner of police so it's they yeah. again they they're mirroring each other just like uh just re- like Ridley's doing so he, i mean honestly if that's what they're going to do and this is going to be a political book throughout i guess they picked the right writer yeah that, that's true uh okay up next we have catwoman number 48 furious hearts part 1 of 3 tinny howard on story uh, nico leone on art veronica gandini on colors and josh reed on letters um i go back and forth i have such mixed feelings on tinny's run on catwoman and I, th- I think it's a matter of pacing. I've talked a lot about it in the past, how it just – it seems to move along so quickly at times and other times seems to be a little slower. But it's that kind of lack of a consistent pacing where I feel like it's in fits and starts. Um, and I just don't know how well it's working for me. That being said, the Nico Leone line work and the Veronica Gandini colors have been spectacular throughout. Uh, no different here, especially when we get this view of an Italian villa in the first couple pages with some beautiful pinks and oranges uh, and what have you. But I don't know. Ultimately, this is this is just not working for me. I feel like I'm missing something. I'm not sure what it is. But what are your thoughts on it? Well, first, I got to give compliments to the artist. Uh, I, I love the cover A's, uh, the consistency on the cover A. I mean, uh, look, uh, just an absolutely gorgeous cover. And cover B is pretty damn good and cover C is pretty damn good too. This is Catwoman after all. At the very least, even if you don't like the story of Catwoman, you're always going to love at least one of the many variant covers uh, of, 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 the issue, of the series. Now, I actually, I enjoyed this. I actually thought this was, uh, this is, this is the beginning of a new story arc called Furious Hearts. It's part one of three. You mentioned Teeny Howard is the uh, uh, writer and Nico Leon on the art. I, this is exploring uh, – we, we know from last issue, Catwoman and um, – I just drew a blank on his name. Uh, Lam- Lamont? Val- Valmont. Valmont, right. Uh, and Valmont, they're, they're in Europe. And uh, meanwhile, Darius, who is the – Darius has been basically kidnapped uh, by, by forces working with Black Mask. And uh, they can't get to him. In the meantime, they got to uh, – so they figured that 
both her and Valmond, the, the character work here between her and Valmond, it's it's not bad. It's entertaining. They got the Teeny Howard is building a, a good rapport between them. Valmond uh, confesses uh, at one point in this in this in their misadventure here that. In, in the event that they die, he wanted to confess to uh, Selena that he has feelings for her and that he was possibly falling in love. And that uh, very clearly he – very clearly there's there's something going on there. Uh, the, the issue ends with uh, uh, Selena and Valmont kissing each other after landing on the ground on a parachute. This had – this actually read – if you look at this in terms of the action, in terms of what happened here, this basically was like a, the equivalent of a James Bond story uh they're in europe they end up in misadventure they got they got to deal with a mafioso they got to deal with uh, various powerful uh, mafia heads in order to negotiate the saving of the life the community you know speaking with the basically they speak to the female the wife of the uh, the head of the mafia who really controls everything anyway and selena basically talks the female head or the wife into taking control and ultimately giving the order that will save darius's life and meanwhile they've got to escape on a plane and before it they jump off and they land and then they land kissing on the ground at the end of the issue. I mean, this is basically has all the little uh, check marks of, of, of your almost like your act one, act two and act three of a James Bond movie. <laughs> and uh, in that respect, I like it. Now, where where you can be critical of it and where it can break down is as and you've, you touched upon it is is sort of the pacing and the plot points. She definitely, definitely plays Teeny Howard plays fast and loose with the plot points. And, um, but I personally, I'm, I, it's because I'm having so much fun with the ride that I, I don't care about the hiccups along in the journey. It actually works for me. I, I think the dialogue is pretty good. I think it's a little hokey that Teeny Howard is all about empowering women, whether she's, whether she's writing about Harley Quinn or whether she's writing about humiliating black mask here, it's about putting the mob, the, the mob in their place. And here it's about, you know, it's a, a female, it's a wife of a mobster taking control and putting her foot down. And so, uh, but that's fine. It's a Catwoman comic. I mean, she is kind of a kick-ass female. So we're going to have some kick-ass female villains or anti-heroes as well. That's to be expected. And so I don't mind it. Uh, I hate black. I mean, I like, I I love to hate black mask. So I love that ultimately he's going to end up being humiliated again. And so I kind of like, I'm hit and miss with Teeny Howard, but I don't, this is, there's no way this is, I'm having, I'm generally having fun with Teeny Howard. This is not, I don't think this is, I don't consider this to be terrible writing at all. I think it's, it has its fun moments. It's, and you can have some, you can have uh, adventure here and have some fun. And Valmont, I actually find myself liking Valmont. And so I'm really curious to know, because Batman's going to show up next issue. It's teased next issue. And since she's getting closer to Valmont, of course, we know she had a falling out with Bruce Wayne. They were going to get married after all. I'm curious to see how how Teeny Howard is going to handle that character dynamic between Selena and Bruce once Selena, Bruce, and Valmont are all in the same room together, if that occurs. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I should make it clear. I don't think this is bad writing. I think the pacing, I think she's got so much she wants to say, she's having trouble fitting it in, which is, it happens. I mean, it's it's a challenge to, to fit your story into to only 20 pages. Uh, and I do agree. I mean, I've gone on record many times as saying I don't really care for the relationship between Bruce and Selena. I'd rather see Bruce with, with Zatanna, and I'd rather see Catwoman with somebody else. Valmont is a fantastic uh, love interest for her. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, okay, up next, 
Uh, this book was so good. Nightwing number 97. <laughs> so good. In fact, when I finished reading it, I immediately had to post on Twitter about how fantastic it was. Uh, Tom Taylor's the writer, Bruno Redondo on art. Uh, we also have Geraldo Borges for the pencils and inks on pages eight through 16. Caio Felipe does the inks on Bruno Redondo's pages and then Adriana Lucas on colors and Wes Sabat on letters. Um, I have to admit, not even realizing that there was a different artist. Um, now when I flip through and look at it, I do realize, yeah, it's a different artist basically for the scene where um, Renee Montoya and the Gotham city or not Renee Montoya. Uh, well, Renee Montoya, I think it's Renee Montoya. Um, she comes to pick up the, the, the crime Lord that's going to testify against all these people that were in cahoots with, uh, with blockbuster, right? This guy Maroney, who feels that he's protected because Blockbuster calls all the shots in, in Blood Haven. Blood Haven. Um, and so Boss Maroney thinks he's protected. Then when he finds out uh, Blockbuster's dead, Renee Montoya shows up and says, hey, we're going to take you to Gotham to keep you safe, which I don't know how well that works, right? Gotham, pretty dangerous place. But anyway, while they're transporting him to Gotham, they, they get attacked. And Nightwing and uh, and Barbara Gordon Batgirl have to, to save Maroney and they take him off to this bunker in the woods that Batman has these safe houses, you know, keep in mind that Bloodhaven and Gotham are real close to each other, 30 minutes by car, supposedly according to the <laughs> timeline of this. Uh, and so, and there's woods in between and Batman has these bunkers, right? And Dick's like, yeah, he's got three of them, uh, safe houses in the forest. Um, I assume they, and this is the line that had me, like I was, I was doubled over laughing. Because Nightwing says, I assume these mostly exist in case Bruce ever wants to brood remotely. <laughs> I just... <laughs> that is one of the best lines that Tom Taylor has ever written. Like, why does Bruce have these bunkers out in the woods? Well, in case he ever wants to brood remotely. It's just so... Uh, it was so funny. I just, again, I appreciate that Tom Taylor always... Uh, you know, serious subjects or not, he's always injecting humor into his comics. And, uh, and this was, was fantastic. Uh, we also have some classic Bruno Redondo art where he's showing the way back uh, a Nightwing rather his weapons work, including seeing um, hmm. a little a tranquilizer dart fi fired out of one of his Ascarima uh, sticks. So that was fun. And then at the very end, we see Scar included on the head, Rick Grayson show up. All of a sudden, him and Dick Grayson are two different people. Uh, yeah, and it says this night might get even weirder. So uh, this is just a lot of fun. It doesn't necessarily move the story forward a, a ton, but I didn't mind it at all uh, because it was it was really fun. We didn't get much of Heartless. We got some reference to him. We see Blockbuster on the slab with the hole in his chest where his heart's been ripped out like we saw happen last issue. Uh, but this was just so much fun. And for me, that line for Bruce to brood remotely is like that line made this comic. Uh, it was so enjoyable for me. I, I literally was laughing out loud. My wife's like, what are you doing over there? Uh, so, yeah, it was so, so good. Uh, and the art by Bruno Redondo and Hort, uh, and Borges is just it, it's it's beautiful. Just the color work, the line work. Uh, absolutely absolutely fantastic so yeah. what do you think of this uh well my one of my favorite lines is uh just a b beautiful moment of humor with barbara gordon 
uh, where uh, Nightwing says to, Bar- to Babs, Babs, there's a man stealing hearts out there. Of course, he's referring to Heartless, who took uh, Heartless's heart, uh, removed it. And she says, and there's a man who's stolen my heart right here. <laughs> and then just the way that it's illustrated is amazing. You know, she goes, oh, I'm sorry, that was terrible. And it was a bad joke. But just artistically, the look on her face, she knew that you could tell that she knew it was a bad joke. The way that the way that Redondo captured that moment uh, it was a perfect synchronization between the, I'm sure, the intention of the writer and the art artist. Absolutely perfect. And it shows, it's just, it's this one small example of the character work of why Taylor and Redondo make such an amazing creative team together. Because it's moments like that that sell this comic. Because one of my ongoing, uh, dare I say, constructive criticisms of this comic at times is that it has suffered, I think, at times in terms of the plot a little bit. I, I, I always wanted a little bit more sophistication to the plot. And it does, it takes shortcuts on the plot, but every time it takes a shortcut on the plot, I think it 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 adds it gives me something extra with the character moment, with a di- with a scene of dialogue or with a bit of dialogue or or a bit of humor that you alluded to, and that's why this is such this is really just such a well made, well put together comic book that even when it's it's one of those things. It's the diff. It's it might not be uh, you know better. Uh, what is it? Better a diamond with a flaw than a pebble without, and that's what this is. This is a diamond that has its flaws, but it's its flaws that gives its dare I say those character moments, and that's why it works so well. I really don't have much to add in terms of everything else. I think you you, you nailed it. I, I I thought it has. I mean, just great moments. That, and you know. I mean, I love the fact that the bad guy, Mr. Maroney, is in the in the cabin in the woods there, and and he basically complained. You know, they knocked him out, and they went and they were intimate upstairs, and they thought they tranquilized him, and he made a point of telling him, "Your tranquilizer only kept me up for three hours, and these are thin walls." So he could hear them having their fun. So I, again, I thought that was funny too. This is dialogue that feels natural. It, it, you can you can easily imagine this being a cinematic experience, uh, sitting back with great character moments, and of course action and come come on man a great character a a great moment at the end all of a sudden rick grayson shows up what the heck's going on here i mean nobody a lot of people didn't like that rick grayson uh, storyline even dan jurgens couldn't really save it and so now all of a sudden this guy shows up and he's rick grayson kind of makes me go "Mm, i hope this hope this plot doesn't go sideways but i'm sure we'll we'll see what tom taylor has in has in store for next issue yeah it was the last thing that I expected, that's the last, I mean, yeah. they're not two separate people. So yeah, unless there's, you know, multiversal shenanigans going on, you gotta, you're like, yeah, it was a big, it was a big surprise and a welcome surprise. So we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, okay. Up next, we have Black Adam number five from uh, Christopher Priest on the script, Rafa Sandoval, Jordi Tarragoni, uh, Tarragona, Jose Luis and Jonas, uh, Trinidad on art, Matt Hermes does the colors, Willie Schubert on letters. Um, This has been a dense book and a little hard to follow at times. We're starting to get more action now as it ramps up. uh, Now that Black Adam is no longer infected with this space parasite or what have you. So we're starting to get some exposition. We're starting to get some forward momentum with the story that's starting to explain what's going on. It's starting to to all pull together. I'm realizing this is a, a, a series I'm going to need to go back and reread with this whole Akkadians and gods and bouncing back and forth through time. Uh, I'm going to have to go back and reread it once it's all said and done, and I'll probably get a lot more out of it. Um, the art is absolutely fantastic. There's specifically 
a double page spread where Black Adam basically stops this jet from flying into Kandak airspace. And it's, it's just stunning. You, you have to see it for yourself. Uh, you know, it's one of those challenges that we have whenever we do these, um, these episodes that we can't show double page spreads on, um, on YouTube. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, the art is fantastic. That, that scene just was breathtaking. So, yeah. uh, I still wonder, and we've talked about this before, how well this will tie in when Black Adam's coming out at the end of the week, I think, or next week, I think it's, maybe it's the 21st. I'm not exactly sure the date, but it's coming out really, really soon. Um, and so I got to wonder, was Christopher Priest the right person to be writing a Black Adam book when the Black Adam movie comes out? Because he's not a, a writer who dumbs things down for the audience, right? Like you got to do your homework um, and really pay attention. And if you have you know a little bit more of a context or history of the DC universe, it'll be a little easier to understand. Um, so I just wonder if, I hope it doesn't put any people off uh, because it is sort of complicated. I guess we'll see. what do you think? Well, uh, what's interesting is, first of all, I share, I share your sentiment, and, and we've talked about it before, that, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if Christopher Priest is, was necessarily the right the right choice for this as well. Although, I, the story is coming but we, together. But we, were, but we were really excited when we found out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, 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 for, for sure. I just, I think we were thinking with a, maybe just a little bit more synchronicity between maybe this. And I realize this is in the DC universe, but you could have made... You know, you could have made this a little bit more, uh, a little bit more, uh, more, more simplistic of a plot, quite frankly. And, yep. and in particular, now I would be curious to know if Christopher Priest was told because, look, I'm not spoiling anything before the movie. If you don't know this, you've been living under a rock. Rumor has it Superman shows up in the Rock movie, uh, or pardon me, in the Rock movie, <laughs> in the Black Adam movie. Yeah. Okay, it rumor has it he shows up in it. So I, I find it interesting that you know people who will. If you are interested in the movie, if you pick up this series, this series has been hinting from the beginning that there's going to be an altercation between Batman and Black Adam. And at and ultimately, that's, that's one of my criticisms here. I don't think Batman has any right whatsoever to confront Black Adam in terms of his actions with regard to Kandak. He is a Black Adam isn't just a superhero. He's a world leader. Batman is committing international crime by crossing into airspace to confront Black Adam. Black Adam has every right as the leader of conduct, as the leader of that nation to take out, to take out those jets. Full stop. Now you may not like it, but that's the way it is. It's the sovereignty of nations. Now I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> you know, I think that's now while that's a criticism in a way that's more of an observation. I kind of like that I'm saying that because I think that's kind of cool because Black Adam is saying, look, enough of this. Black Adam says on this issue, and this is what I like what Christopher Priest is doing. He's sort of dealing with the elephant in the room because the fact is Black Adam is a dictator. But Black Adam's saying, look, I, I rule a Middle Eastern country and yeah, I'm a dictator, but I do have a plan that ultimately we can, I don't, Black Adam isn't ruling out a democracy, but his his arrogance, call it his arrogance or his presumptiveness, call it call it what you want. But he says, no, I, he's basically telling Batman, I'm a dictator now. This is my country. I'm ruling it. This is the way it's going to go. And no one in the UN, you or anybody or Batman is going to tell me what to do. I like that. 
I like that Black Adam is saying that. I don't have to agree with Black Adam's politics or all that other stuff, but I like that that makes Black Adam more interesting. That to me makes this story more interesting. What I find less interesting is the whole black for the the spore thing from space or this when and just to, just to dumb this down for people which has never been made clear enough in this story is that when black adam was banished by the wizard thousands of years ago and punished and banished he he apparently now it's revealed was banished to the deep recesses of space where he he came into contact with some space spores which read his mind and and became ultimately gained sentience and and became the embodiment of Egyptian gods and 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 they've kind of now come back to earth like this to me I'm I'm more interested in a more down to earth political thriller international political thriller between Batman and Black Adam than this other ancient Egyptian gods that aren't really gods but but arose because of some viral space sentience or what shenanigans so you know, again, it, it makes for an interesting story and it can explain the disease that he has and that what and that the white Adam has, this Malik character. So it's I, I want to give him credit. It's it's an intricate sort of plot line. Uh, I'm, I'm enjoying this. Uh, I don't know if it sounds like I am, but I am because I like the way it makes me think. Uh, but I question whether or not maybe a, is it really that new reader friendly? But, you know, we'll, we'll have to, you know, it's we'll yeah. have to wait and see how it ends up. It's a you, you can say this about it. It's a very Christopher Priest like plot. <laughs> yeah. Like it is on point with what he does. Um, yeah. Guys, just got a fertile imagination. So, uh, okay. Up next, we have Rogues number four. This is from writer Joshua Williamson. Arts by Leo Max. Additional pencils by Luca Finelli, Adriano Tertolici, Danielle Miano, and Frederiki Tardino. I wonder if Leo Max had a, trouble completing it, and that's what why there was a delay before this final issue, which is kind of, I I'd sort of forgotten about this to be honest. Um, and I feel like it lost some of its momentum with the delay. Uh, colors are by Jason wordy lettered by Hassan Atman Elhow. This ends up being uh, a, a good story, a fun story, a tragic story in a lot of ways. And it kind of ends just as you sort of expect it to. Um, and it, it's, it definitely lives up to the, the way Joshua Williamson talked about it as the final rogues story. So uh, I think it's one of those that I'll, I, I need to reread and I want to reread and kind of in one sitting uh, because it has been so long since the last, um, since the last issue. And I feel like the last issue was sort of the, the highlight uh, because not that it this was super predictable, but it made sense. Like what happens here makes sense. And it's sort of the inevitable conclusion of what has come in the first three issues. So there weren't any big surprises or twists here. Um, it's sort of like watching a train wreck or a car crash in slow motion. Like you, you see it coming, you can't avoid it. Um, and it's pretty brutal, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, also, I didn't necessarily mind that there were these other artists. I think their styles are all similar enough. Um, but I, I, I did notice it and I feel like the pages that I enjoyed the most were the pages that I, I could identify as the Leo Max pages. So uh, what do you think? I thought uh, uh, there, there is so many interesting story arcs. We haven't, uh, you didn't mention any of the story arcs. There is <laughs> my, uh, to me, the story of Ben Turner. I, I've always been a huge Ben Turner fan uh, since the days of the classic Richard Dragon series. And I've, I've never 
thought of Ben Turner as a villain. And so I've always sort of thought of curious that he's one of the villains here. That's part of this yeah, role. He's, he's bronze tiger. Everybody, yeah. In case. You don't. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I, I should have said that bronze tiger and the, the tragedy of how, how bronze tiger was taken out here at the end. And I, I we won't spoil it, uh, but it is, this is, this is a very dark tale. And, uh, and, there wasn't really any any winners here. Not that I expected that per se. I, I didn't necessarily expect that because this is dealing with the rogues, and we have to say that the gorilla Grodd versus, uh, you know, uh, Doctor Freeze here, uh, uh, Captain Cold. What's that? Captain Cold. Said, sorry. Yeah, yes. Said, sorry, Captain man. <laughs> uh, gorilla Grodd versus Captain Cold. It's it's fairly. It's it's pretty cool. There's a lot of violent scenes. There's a lot. I mean, it is it is visceral. It is impactful. There's uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of violence here. And this, like, I was genuinely curious because this felt. I felt going through this. I I genuinely didn't know who was going to survive. And that's and that's a compliment because it was like, OK, it, it became quite evident from last issue that anybody this was open game. This is black label. Anybody is open game. And I got the sense that I was wondering if Joshua Williamson would go there. I wonder I, I was wondering how dark Joshua Williamson would go because he's never really gone all that dark in the past, to be blunt. Even Dark Crisis, no one's died in Dark Crisis. You know, even in Flat, everything, he's never really gone full rogue, full dark, uh, pardon the pun. But he, he goes dark here. And uh, it's like, it's almost like maybe Joshua Williamson's trying to get something off his chest, but I like it. I'm glad he did it. This was, this was action packed. There were, there were the anger of Gorilla uh, Grodd, uh, the, the kick-ass nature of uh, Bronze Tagger as he snaps his neck as he bo- is about to go and, and kick some ass. Uh, each of these characters have their moments. So regardless of how what their ultimate fate is, each character has their moments where they shine. It's almost like this is each of the rogues' last hurrah. It's their last hurrah before their ultimate fate. And uh, I think if you're a rogues fan, you'll probably enjoy it. You might not enjoy the individual fate if if you have a favorite rogues character, but this is something where, you know, there was no promises of a happy ending on this. And uh, I guess it all depends on the expectations that individual readers will bring to the table in reading this. But I thought this was I thought this was a very good final rogues tale for like a final rogues story. Uh, this is something that if you're a flash fan and you like the, and you take the characterization that has been maybe embodied by Jeff Johns and you, you take a darker natural endpoint to those characterizations. Uh, and Williamson of course is a huge Jeff Johns fan. I can see this, this, this possesses a high degree of verisimilitude to me looking, looking at the characters of the rogues and extrapolating and moving forward. And in particular, uh, you know, Leonard Snart's character, Snart's character, who I, I never liked, I, I, I've never been a fan of uh, Captain Cole to begin with, to be quite frank. And I can't say I'm a fan at the end of this, but if I dislike Captain Cold at the end of this rogues, it's for all the right reasons. Cause this I thought was a well-written, uh, well-written for, for issue black label series. Yeah. Captain Cold's, He's not likable at all. He's not supposed to be. Yeah. Um, he's, uh, and it's not something you can, he's an asshole. That's just, <laughs> that's, just that's just the, the, the best it. way to put it. Yeah. We just, we kind of know what to expect. You know, that's just the best word for him. He's not a jerk. He's not, you know, a prick. 
He's not a jackass. He's an asshole. That's just the perfect word for him. Uh, and he is throughout this. And so, yeah, this is sort of, like I said, the inevitable conclusion. If you keep following the rogues and the world gets to be a darker place and they keep having to kind of turn up the violence and, you know, keep pushing that line, keep pushing their boundaries, this is where they'll end up. So I, I thought it was a, a very realistic take. Um, all right. Up next, we have the latest in the Batman One Bad Day one shots. Uh, getting a lot of John Ridley this this week. It's written by Ridley. Giuseppe Camincoli does the layouts. Cam Smith on finishes. Rob Lee on letters. Um, and, and again, fantastic covers. There's a a Jim Lee variant cover with the Penguin kind of rolling up his sleeves like he's getting ready to beat the crap out of somebody. And you can it's clear he's in like a meat locker. But instead of slabs of meat hanging up behind him, there's uh, these giant tuna. Dan Mora does a 1 in 25 variant. Jamal Campbell does a 1 in 50. Brian Boland does the 1 in 100. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of hard to, to pick a, a favorite cover. They're all, um, they're all fantastic. Um, it, it's sort of interesting, the actual story. This is uh, the third of these One Bad Days. Uh, it's so interesting that DC chose to give us the Tom King and Mitch Garrett's one first because that's been the best one so far. And it was so good, one of the best comics I've read in the last decade. I think it's going to be really tough for anybody to top it. Um, so I don't know. I feel like in a way they maybe should have done that one last. That being said, I don't think either of us was overly impressed with the Two-Face issue. Yeah, this one, however, is a step back in the right direction in my mind. It It's fascinating. When we meet the Penguin, he's kind of down on his luck. He's been... Um, sort of replaced or deposed by somebody called the Umbrella Man who I got this vibe of like an evil uh, Duke Thomas, like an evil signal. <laughs> I don't think it's supposed to be Duke yeah. Thomas, but th yeah. they call him the Umbrella Man because this guy, he was basically the guy that held Penguin's umbrella like over his head when they would he would go on walks, keep the sun off him or keep the rain off of him, yeah. elements or what have you. Um, yeah. And eventually kind of took over. Um, and is such a jackass, is such a, a jerk and so greedy. He doesn't care about anything other than money. He doesn't care about the crime, how much crime there is or what crimes are actually being committed in Gotham as long as he gets his cut. And so you see the Penguin kind of down on his luck um, come back in and realize the mistakes he made and slowly build himself back up through old relationships and connections, um, even to the point of confronting Batman and he has this conversation and you, you can sort of see it coming. It's a little bit telegraphed by what Ridley is hinting at before. Um, because uh, when we do see Batman early on in, in the book, he's overwhelmed. He's talking to uh, commissioner Montoya and there's so many radio calls, police radio calls coming over as he's flying in his Batwing above the city. He doesn't, he's almost paralyzed. He's so overwhelmed. He's like, just pick one, just pick one, go do something. Um, and the Penguin, he wouldn't let it get to that point, right? Like in, in his mind, that's bad for business. You want there to be crime, but not so much crime that it's overwhelming because then you get the crackdown, then you get no man's land, then you get National Guard called in or, or whatever, right? That's the way he, he sees it. So Batman, in a way, turns a blind eye to what the Penguin does. And it's interesting, the Penguin's perspective, like Penguin's like, you, Batman, you thought you were in charge, but actually you were just part of my plan to keep the city at this sort of equilibrium. So it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I don't know if Ridley's giving the Penguin too much credit. Um, it's interesting. DC recently, you and I talked about this in the uh, the run, the Detective Comics run that Mariko Tamaki was doing, that they seem to be tr trying to bring some of the 
edge back to the penguin and, and you know with him as the head of the iceberg lounge a little bit more cloak of respectability i'll call it um a little bit more jokey not as formidable not as scary not as dangerous um and it seems like dc's trying to turn that back a little bit this fits somewhere sort of in the middle um but it definitely portrays the penguin more as a really intelligent villain as opposed to in the past you know you could talk about 60s 70s sort of gimmicky then you could talk about him being you know maybe a little more uh, respectable like i said um so I, I like this take on on the penguin. I just don't know how well it, uh, how believable it is. Right? This is a little bit of a different, more intelligent penguin than we've ever seen before. Uh, but I guess the Riddler was as well. Um, so yeah. Uh, ultimately, I enjoyed this. I thought it was a good story. I thought the art was really solid. Um, so, but yeah, it still doesn't rise to the level of the Riddler <laughs> that we have. But maybe it's not fair to to make the comparison because that was just so good. But anyway, curious your thoughts uh, on this one. Well, I I think that, uh, you know, it's funny. You and I really love the Riddler one, and I still think it's the best one. And uh, But I know that a lot of uh, – I, I got friends that really, really hate the Riddler one. <laughs> and uh, it's it's very interesting to hear the, the different differing reasons why. And, and it, it's, it all comes down to a lot of the things that you and I really loved about it. Other people really strongly, viscerally disliked about it. So it's interesting. I, I actually think that those people that really disliked the, the, the Riddler one are probably going to very much like this one. Because I because it it elevates the penguin, like you said, and and you basically indicated it. But the the big revelation at the end when he confronts the Umbrella Man is is Penguin's revelation of Batman. Like Batman basically tells Penguin, look, okay, I'll give you a chance to take out the Umbrella Man, but when you're done taking out the Umbrella Man, I'm going to take you out. And so ultimately, at the end, when the 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 Penguin through a long series of events getting himself back up to the top again, starting at the bottom, working his way up, getting the old ba- gang back together, uh, making remaking old friends, reestablishing alliances that were shattered in the past and earning those alliances and ultimately uh, dethroning the Umbrella Man. Uh, Batman comes to basically confront Oswald to basically take out Oswald and, and Oswald tells him exactly like you said, look, think twice, Batman. Think real hard about what's happened here. It's my absence is what's made Gotham created all this chaos in Gotham. I could control the chaos. And it it did make me appreciate Penguin in a way before that I hadn't before. Because I, when I, clearly that's something that Joker never did. And Riddler never did. Penguin has always been more of this godfather type of character. And he is sort of that character that we don't appreciate how important it is probably to keep crime under wraps. When you think about it, it makes sense that you're never going to get rid of crime in Gotham. So wouldn't you rather have controlled crime, controlled chaos? <laughs> you know, just enough to keep people kept, because let's face it, we always we always joke. Why do people live in Gotham City? Are they crazy? Well, you got to do it. You got to have that right balance of of lack of crime. You got to have your less crime areas and your more crime areas. And who who orchestrates that balance? It's the Penguin, or at least that's what's established here in one bad day. And the Penguin really did have a bad day. But when what I like about it is that when Penguin has a bad day, we all have a bad day. 
because we need the penguin as much as we need Batman. And that's the message here. And that's what, why I think this story works so well. And what, that's why I think a lot of the people, I, I think probably more people, uh, many more people are going to enjoy this and I think are going to jump back on the bandwagon of, of maybe, uh, or at least enjoying this, uh, this, this chapter of Batman One Bad Day. So. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Uh, I also thought the art by Giuseppe Camincoli, his his art tends to be a little more sketchy and not not as clean. Um, but typically he doesn't have an inker. So I like the fact that he had an inker. Cam Smith here really kind of cleaned up uh, those lines. And I thought the, the art was really strong. So, uh, okay. Up next, we have Titans United Bloodshot number two from writer Kevin Scott. Lucas Meyer on art, Tony Avina on colors, Carlos M. Mangual on letters. What'd you think? I'm sorry. This this was one where I just I, I apologize, my friend. I, I never had time to read it. Man, I, every time I have you go first, uh, they're the ones. That I, I'm sorry. I, I I just no. Oh, that's fine. Uh, I so I really enjoyed this. Um, I didn't enjoy the first issue as much as we enjoyed the first Titans United. Um, maybe it's because I don't really have. Uh, I never really cared for Brother Blood. Uh, so in this, we saw at the end of last issue. Tim Drake, Robin kind of thrown into an alternate reality. Um, and we see the the fallout of that. It's, it's clear that the, the Church of the Blood has been replaced by the Church of the Raven. Why Rachel established her own church in this other reality. Why they, they control everything. There seemed to be this fascist regime. We don't know. Um, the Fearsome Five is the Freedom Five here. And they're fighting to as kind of the rebellion against the church. Uh, Batman does show up, but it's Dick Grayson as Batman as Tim is trying to get through to these people and make him understand there's a brutal double page spread when Tim finally does break through to, uh, to Dick Grayson and, and helps him realize that this reality is not the real reality. And we see the Justice League there dead. Plastic Man's all stretched out, flashes a skeleton. John Jones is in his Martian form all desiccated. Uh, it's it's just a brutal looking uh, scene, and we don't know why. So, Kevin Scott's clearly uh, establishing this this new reality in a way you could think of it as black label almost. Um, but how is Brother Blood doing this? Has he really changed reality? Is it just an illusion? We don't know what the answers to that are. But uh, at the end, one of um, one of Raven's enforcers, one of the enforcers of the the Church of Raven, uh, Raven shows up. Um, and we see that it's Starfire on the final page. And I, I was enjoying the art throughout. I thought it was really strong, really strong line work and color work. But when you get to that final page and you see Starfire in this, they call her the Inquisitor, I think. Um, and you see her in this in this costume. Um, I, she's never looked hotter in my mind. I mean, <laughs> even in her skimpiest... Uh, outfits, whether, you know, from back in the day in Teen Titans or in the um, Red Hood and the Outlaw series, there, there's something about that outfit that Lucas Meyer designed. I'm assuming it's his design. That's just fantastic. So the art is so strong and this is just a really, really fun series. It does share that with the first series. Uh, Rocky and I, we talked about it throughout how it's continuity free. It's very new reader friendly, um, you know, kind of the, the, the mistakes that we wonder about if they are mistakes or, you know, those choices that DC made with um, black Adam in the hands of priest, um, you know, maybe they would have been better off doing black Adam with something like this, that just, you don't have to read anything else or any foreknowledge of the teen Titans 
to read this. Um, it does help to have a little bit of context in terms of knowing Brother Blood is a, a classic Teen Titans uh, villain. But other than that, and, and even that isn't really you know necessary. It's not crucial to the story. Um, but this is just a lot of fun. Uh, the, the interaction, the artwork, um, the color work, everything is is handled really, really well. So um, Kevin Scott's quickly becoming a writer that I, I feel like I need to pay attention to. Uh, and he, he definitely has uh, affinity for these characters. Um, and I didn't even mention the covers. You know, we, we talk about covers periodically. Every one of the covers on here is fantastic. Ed, uh, I think Ed Bennis, no, Eddie Barrow, sorry. <laughs> Eddie Barrow says the main cover, then Derek Chu has a cover. Ed Bennis and uh, Danny Ribeiro have a variant cover. And then there's a Black Adam movie variant. Like, I mean, the covers on this are just, just fantastic. Um, and yeah, there's, there's one of Starfire. She's in her traditional costume, but it's still, she still looks gorgeous. So, oh, she's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Even, e- are- even when you, uh, even when, when you draw Starfire, even when you try to, uh, de-accentuate the breasts they still seem to pop out which is fantastic you know so there's still something to love uh, about the purian fanboy for me uh in me still can still enjoy a good starfire cover no matter how much an artist tries to uh make it uh perhaps more uh uh through the female lens <laughs> there's still a lot to see through the male lens so i yeah it's it's you gotta love starfire yeah, that- yeah, and that Ed Bettis cover is is fantastic as well. Like I, I yeah, yeah, I don't even know which cover I'm getting. The Derek Chu cover is the one, yeah. the Starfire one. But yeah, they're all they're all I, great. I'm so. getting all the uh, I'm getting all the uh, Black Adam movie Black. covers. So because uh, I I've got all the Black Adam McFarlane action figures, and I'm yeah. gonna have all the covers behind them. It's gonna look pretty good. I have a nice shelf already set up for it. So. I might do a little video on it at some point in the next few weeks. So, <laughs> so you're getting two. So you're getting two covers then, because there's no way you're not getting that Starfire cover. Uh, well, uh, well, I, I might get the Starfire cover. I don't know. My my retailer doesn't get all. We always get all all the covers, and I didn't pre-order it. I pre-ordered the Black Adam, but I didn't pre-order. Uh, I got the the cover A, but I didn't. I didn't pre-order cover B, so he he doesn't get a lot of shelf copies. But sometimes he might have gotten that Starfire because, of course, he's a he's a white. He's a white male, white cis yeah, male, so he probably did. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, you see that cover sitting on the shelf. I don't know how you don't pick up that book. It's That's exactly so, right. Yeah, so awesome. Uh, uh, all right, last book we're going to talk about in detail, uh, the final issue of Flashpoint Beyond, issue number six. Jeff Johns, Tim Sheridan, Jeremy Adams as writers, Zermanico, uh, Michael Hanin, and Gary Frank as the artist, Romulo Fardo Jr., Jordi Belair, and Brad Anderson on colors, respectively. Fajardo for Zermanico, Jordi Belair on uh, Michael Yanin and Brad Anderson, longtime collaborator of Gary Frank. Rob Lee does the letters. Um, this ended not in the way that I expected it to. Uh, and there's going to be tons of talk about this book, about this series, about what comes next for Jeff Johns and DC and the new golden age. But, uh, but let's talk about this specifically. What'd you think? I, I enjoyed this and it, this was unexpected. I didn't expect the ending on this. Uh, but I just, I just, everything, when Jeff Johns is in his A game, when he's in that special space where he's in tune with the DC universe and the fans, this is the result, at least for me. I mean, this, this tickled all the spots on, on my comic book, uh, fancy that it needed to. I just, uh, and I just love it. I, I, I mean, 
I'm more excited about where this is going to go. And, and, you know, on the one hand, it, it's a little bit underwhelming because I'm wondering, oh my God, the Flashpoint universe, it's going to ultimately die. Nothing matters, Thomas Wayne, nothing matters. But somehow in one issue, all of a sudden, Martha Wayne, who's the Joker, she becomes just a little bit more sane. And her and Thomas are kind of a little bit more on the same page. And suddenly, isn't it interesting that it took Martha Wayne, the Joker of the Flashpoint universe, to maybe get Thomas Wayne to give a rat's ass about saving the universe through the guise of saving their son, of going back in time, utilizing a time sphere to save their son. And ultimately, that snow globe, we were wondering what the hell that snow globe was at the beginning, that that the Batman, that our Batman of Earth Prime, was in that snow globe. Well, indeed, the Flashpoint universe is encapsulated within that snow globe. The, the Flashpoint universe is established as essentially an aspect of hypertime and that ultimately the... If released back into hypertime, the Flashpoint universe apparently should no longer exist then. But yeah, let me ask you real quick. So, Jeff, the whole idea of hypertime was Mark Wade, but the Flashpoint universe was created by Jeff Johns. Jeff Johns, a longtime scribe on The Flash as well. Right. Do you think he always planned on the Flashpoint universe being part of hypertime when he created it? Or do you think just going back? It'd be interesting to ask him, right? It would be. It would be interesting to ask him if maybe he thought thought of it, uh, because all I know is that it's it clearly has resonated with fans. And uh, if Jeff Johns has an ego and uh, he probably does have more of an ego than some people might believe he has, uh, if he's earned it, he's earned the ego. And maybe if there was a part of Jeff Johns that thought I'm going to I want to bring the Flashpoint universe back at some point. Well, good for him, because I don't see anybody complaining. Uh, the fact that we now, that Batman in Out of Earth Prime, or, or Earth Prime, Earth Zero, now has the Flashpoint universe and is now the the custodian of that globe, as opposed to the Time Masters, I think is a pretty cool thing. And and what I like about it is that this this doesn't really answer any questions. The Flashpoint universe is still in danger of destroying itself. The Flashpoint Kryptonians are, are going to be attacking the Flashpoint universe. Batman has to side with, with the uh, Superman or Flashpoint universe. All the heroes of the Flashpoint universe are still facing a Kryptonian invasion in the midst of, a, of an Atlantean and Amazonian war that's still raging. It's The jury is still out whether the Flashpoint universe will even survive. But none of those questions are resolved at the end of this. All you know is that at the end of this, the Flashpoint universe still exists to live and fight another day. It's still and so the the resolution ultimately of the Amazonian and Aquaman and the Atlantean War, uh, the Kryptonian invasion in the Flashpoint universe, that's still to be resolved. And so and in the meantime, we have the Time Masters. Uh, hinting at the end of this that there's there's more to come. That that the the they have we, there's the integrity of the multi of the universe is still at stake and we got hints of names that we've seen before judy garrick the unknown daughter of jay garrick and his wife uh the golden age aquaman quiz kid the golden age red lantern these are heroes that uh jeff johns is taking a page out of mark wade's playbook on in in world's finest basically looking at the past and reimagining the past you don't need a crisis to do that 
<laughs> and they're doing it right. We just, just do it. Having a story like this saying, oh, by the way, did you know that there was a golden age Red Lantern or John Henry Jr. or Cherry, who the hell is Cherry Bomb? Salem the Witch Girl, Ladybug, Molly Pitcher, Betty Ross, the golden age Mr. Miracle, the golden age Legionnaire. This is so cool because it's, it's calling upon the past, the present, and the future of the DC universe, encapsulating them in what might be a revitalized Justice Society of America. And this is all in the final pages. And then, of course, we get hints of this new character. Uh, we're not sure who it is, but this new character appears to be... Um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what her name is. Oh, Cleopatra Pack is her name. And she appears to be a Watchmen character. And what role is she going to play? Uh, well, she she has she's looking for the Watchmen. And so I don't know if that means the Watchman. Who is the Watchman? Is she referring to Dr. Manhattan? Who is she referring to? Who is this Cleopatra Pack? And it, it looks like she's got uh, like a it looks like a I forget the name of the of uh, Dr. Man or um, the, the cat there. That was uh, Ozzy, Ozzy his cat. I forget the name of his cat or his lion pet. But that's what she has there. That it's the same pet. But I forget. I forget his name, Biazzo Boo Boo for something. Anyways, but man, this this just hits all. It, it just it just I love this, and we got a new dynamic duo. We got Harvey Dent's uh, son, the new Robin, and uh, meanwhile we got Martha basically telling Martha as the Joker is still sort of captured uh, by by Thomas, her husband, and basically they're going to be, uh, you know, she tells him at the end this this captured. Martha Wayne Joker telling her husband Thomas Wayne and his sidekick saying, go kill some Kryptonians because Flashpoint Universe is under attack. I want to see the sequel to this so bad. I think it just, it's so much fun. I love the Flashpoint Universe and I thank Jeff Johns for it. Uh, I just got a smile on my face reading this and uh, I don't know, man, I'm just, I, man, between Mark Wade and Jeff Johns, uh, it's it's and Jeremy Adams on the Flash. It's a uh, man. I they 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 capture the essence of the DC universe. I just wish Joshua Williamson on Dark Crisis was a little bit more uh, on board, but uh, we, we shall see. What do you think? Yeah, interesting. Interesting that the you know basically what Johns does here establishes the Flashpoint universe as always being around, right? Part of hypertime, and like I said, wonder if that was always John's plan to do that. Yeah. As far as the new characters, yeah, there's 13 other new characters. You, you ran off some of the names um, and, you know, they're going to be appearing. Some of them have never appeared before. Some of them have been uh, referenced before who they are, how they fit into this new golden age that John's building. I just hope that it can, the stuff can come out on time. You know, I know he likes to work with Gary Franken a lot. Frank's not exactly the, the fastest artist. And then there's times that being said, there's times where he's waiting for Johns to get him the script because Johns is busy with film and TV work. So um, uh, yeah, I hope that, that they're invested and, and we'll have to see as far as the character that shows up on the last couple pages, Cleopatra Pock, this is actually not the first time that we've seen her. She did have a cameo appearance in the final issue of doomsday clock. Um, she did. As a character, oh, yeah. She as a did. character named, yeah. As a character named nostalgia, I think. Oh, okay. Um, I'll have to go back and does, reread that. Yeah, she doesn't um, – she's referenced by name in that, but we don't cool. see her in 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 as clear a way as we do here. I mean she's just wearing like this purple dress. The cat is there next to her. Um, she's mentioned as Cleopatra uh, 
pack. Um, she's obsessed with the rise and fall of Ozymandias. So I would think of that as like her first appearance cameo and this as her first full appearance. So spec alert if, if you're so inclined. Um, and those last couple of pages are drawn by Gary Frank and there is a Gary Frank cover that's absolutely fantastic, kind of reminiscent of um, the, the DC uh, Rebirth special that had everybody in, in tears with Wally and Barry reconnecting. So kind of a different perspective on that. But yeah, what, what this reminds me of, it's so good. It's uh, it was John's did a really great job of tying everything up together in this sixth issue. I wasn't sure every, that all the threads would come together, but they did really, really well. Obviously there's still mysteries and questions, mysteries to be solved and questions to be answered. But the, the, the one thing that I didn't like about this um, sort of bittersweet in a way is that it sort of rem- reminded me of what was possible. Like, I feel like this should have come out like, yeah. I don't know, five years ago or whatever. Like it just, it reminds me of the ball being dropped with rebirth. It, rebirth started off so strong yeah. um, with the, the rebirth and then the Titan series that Johns was involved in. And then uh, and really he was involved in, in um, consulting with the creators on a lot of the books they talked a lot about that at WonderCon that year when everything was announced. Um, and then the button with the Batman Flash uh, crossover, but then things and, and Doomsday Clock it, but then things just started along timeline started elongating, right? Because things were late. And then they changed Doomsday Clock to it <laughs> to a bi monthly. I mean, 12, 12 issues takes 24 months to come out. By that time, everything was wonky and screwed up and it just didn't work. So, um, yeah, it's clear that John still, even though it's not his main focus anymore, he's still has so much talent and so much love for the DC universe and such an ability to weave together these disparate parts that don't seem to work. Like he just has this knack uh, that, that nobody else seems to have, even as passionate as they are. Joshua Williamson is one of the biggest DC fans that I know. So was Dan Didio for that matter. Um, but, you know, we see that Williamson just doesn't quite have the knack, at least to the level that John, that Jeff Johns has of, of bringing in past events of the DCU and, and making them make sense and using it to propel stories forward. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it just, it makes me sad that Johns doesn't devote his time yeah. to comics full time. Yeah. I can totally understand why there's way more money in, in TV and film. And that's what he went to school for. So I totally get it. Um, but as a comic fan, I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't disappointed that he isn't like the, the editor in chief of DC comics or the publisher and calling all the shots, you know, yeah, I, I imagine the continuity that we would have if that were the case. Yeah. And I, I thank you for, for, for mentioning the, the, the narrative plot point of, of, of a letter uh, because the original flashpoint series ended on a letter given by Thomas Wayne to his son, Bruce. And it was the emotional core of that story. And, and it was the emotional core, even of the flashpoint paradox uh, cartoon animated cartoon. And it really, it, it, that it formed the emotional basis of that entire story. And, and to have, and, and to, to use that technique again by having a letter, because at some point Batman, the time master here, I mean, says to, says to Batman, you know, you know, what made you think that you, you can't rely on Thomas Wayne? Thomas Wayne will destroy the Flashpoint universe. He'll let it die. I mean, what, why, why, why would you have faith in your father? And Batman says, because I know my father. And because of, because of a letter that he wrote me. And then, yeah, and he then told it, me. 
Yeah, he basically said in the letter that that he would he would he would he would fight for him and he would fight and it's all in the letter and and to to have the the action play out with with the letter it's one of those things where when I read this the second time I just I skipped ahead and just read the letter full and uninterrupted without the without the pictures and then I read it with the you know with the uh, visuals and it's just as impactful and it works and it works especially if you're a Flashpoint fan and even if you're not a Flashpoint fan full disclosure I wasn't a huge fan of the original Flashpoint series to be very blunt I thought it was good but I didn't think it was great I have a better appreciation for it now because of this and just because it's got it's gained such such a high status in the DC universe and uh, Jeff Johns let's just call it what it is I mean Jeff Johns is just the best writer that DC has ever had I mean just I I don't think there's anyone that really comes close Wow, that's a bold. That is a bold I, statement. I'm just gonna say it. I mean, I mean, he's just, he's just, he's just because time and time again, I don't know how many times has this guy got to come back and save the DC universe. And I got to give a shout out to Doomsday Clock. The Omnibus is out. Uh, the Omnibus is out. Get the Doomsday Clock Omnibus if you can afford it. 125 American. It's a lot of money, but uh, well worth it. And um, yeah, I mean, let's just call it call it what it is. I mean, the guy. How many times does one guy have to? fix screwed up continuity how many times does a guy have to bring back rebirth i mean the guy keeps showing us the way keeps showing us the light he keeps showing us the path and then dc editorial somehow finds a way to deviate from it i mean at some point maybe let's uh maybe let's figure that maybe let's follow one particular guy because he seems to know what he's doing and uh in any event i'll i'll you know that that's the big hot take for the day how's that yeah, that is a hot, that is a spicy take for sure. Uh, yeah, I wasn't the biggest fan of the Flashpoint idea. I didn't like that Barry would be so selfish to go back and try to change time. That's what I didn't like. So the starting point for me, and it sort of tainted what came after. But as time's gone on, I've sort of been able to kind of let that go. And the other thing that this does, this Flashpoint Beyond, is it 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 expands the scope. I mean, Flashpoint Beyond was already such a huge story and big scope and, you know, covered the whole world. But now we're going beyond the earth, right? With the Kryptonians, obviously Krypton didn't explode. Superman's there. He was captured. He was held hostage for, you know, decades. So yeah, there's so much there. So yeah, I do hope that we get as much as I never thought, like when Flashpoint Beyond was announced, I was like, who asked for this? Uh, but I was pretty confident that it would be good because again, it was Jeff Johns. Uh, he didn't let me down, and now all of a sudden I'm I'm anticipating a fl more Flashpoint stories. So yeah, I didn't. That's not a not a place I thought I'd find myself when the series started. So uh, all right, that's all the books that we're going to talk about in detail. As I mentioned, there is a, uh, a Scooby Doo book out this week as well, uh, and then some collections. We have Green Lantern uh, Alliance trade paperback, which collects a couple of the YA Green Lantern books, uh, Doom Patrol. Uh, by Rachel Pollock, Omnibus hardcover. There is a Noon Teen Titans Omnibus Volume 1 hardcover. This is the Wolfman Perez run, that classic, critically acclaimed run. Uh, if you've never read it, here's your chance to pick it up in an Omnibus. Aquaman Green Arrow Deep Target trade paperback that we reviewed, where Aquaman and Green Arrow go Freaky Friday, if you're so inclined. Uh, <laughs> from DC Horror Line, Refrigerator Full of Heads has a hardcover. And then speaking of George Perez... His Wonder Woman run that started in 1987 uh, that he wrote and drew has its first omnibus hardcover out this week as well. And then finally, there's a Black Adam box set trade paperback with, um, I think, I want to say it was Boss Logic that did the cover um, of Black Adam that's digitally painted and it's Black Adam looking like The Rock. 
um, which <laughs> I saw somebody post on social media in giant letters. This is what Black Adam actually looks like. And he actually has hair with the widow's peak. That's oh. how I always look for years. Okay. Uh, you're not talking. Are you talking about the Ben Oliver one? Uh, is it Ben Oliver? Well, yeah, this, is, be- uh, this is the. No, no, uh, no, no, that's not the cover. That's not the cover. Okay. This is yeah. pretty good too, though. This is a reprint of Black Adam number one. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. The, uh, the box set has the Black Adam Justice Society Black Rain. Uh, right. It has three different trade paperbacks. That's one. And then it has um, Shazam Volume 1, which is the backup stories that Jeff Johns told in, uh, in Justice League. And then, uh, let's see, the final one collects uh, Black Adam Rise and Fall of an Empire, which is the series. I think it was a mini series that came out after the 52 Weekly. So if you're a big Black Adam fan or you go and see the movie with The Rock, and you want to check it out, that's a great way to get some more Black Adam content. So, uh, all right, what's your favorite uh, DC book this week? Uh, Well, my pick of the week is, uh, it's got to be Flashpoint Beyond. I just, I I like it too much. Flashpoint Beyond is definitely my pick of the week. There's some honorable mentions there, no question about it, but I would have to uh, go with uh, Flashpoint Beyond with uh, honorable mention to, uh, honorable mention to The Flash, the Flash, interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm glad you picked Flashpoint Beyond because I was trying to decide between that and Nightwing. But since you picked Flashpoint Beyond, I'll pick Nightwing. Uh, anytime a comic has me doubled over with laughter um, in in one part of the story, uh, cringing at the bad Batgirl joke in another part of the story, and then asking myself out loud, "What the hell?" When Rick Grayson shows up uh, in in the final panel, that's a great comic. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So I'm going to give my nod to uh, to Tom Taylor, but I'm glad you picked Flashpoint Beyond because, yeah, um, that was fantastic as well. well that's so, uh, yeah, anything else coming out this week that you want to plug? Uh, well, I, I, I just uh, every week I do an indie comic review uh, with uh, Jim at Weird Science and we, we do that and you can check that out on my channel. Uh, we review Starhenge for uh, Star Starhenge Liam Sharp's fourth issue came out this week. Uh, I, th- I thought it was pretty good. I'm really enjoying Starhenge. It's 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 quite good. Um, sure and uh, also Minor Threats by Patton Oswalt is a is a really fun series if you like sidekicks and you like sort of a more of a darker take on that, but also a comedic take and with some good character work and dialogue. Definitely check that out. And there's 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 so much great indie love. Uh, there's a lot of really good indie comics out there. So uh, I know I noticed that you had some interviews that you did uh, lately. What uh, what what's what have you done? Yeah, now? the latest the latest one that came out uh, Monday today as we're recording this. So yesterday, if you're listening to the DC Spotlight on Tuesday with uh, J M D Mateus, uh, one of my favorite writers, been in comics for for decades. He's got a Kickstarter campaign going on right now for four different series with four different artists. And if you join the campaign, then you get a vote on which one continues first. He's hoping to get to all of them. Or maybe if uh, the votes for all of them are real close, he'll just do another anthology through Kickstarter. Um, so, he, yeah, he came on. He's been on the show before. He came on to tell me all about, you know, not spoilery, but let us know. Give us the elevator pitch for each, each of the different series. We also talked about his novella, which came out earlier this year, called The Excavator, which I cannot recommend highly enough. Uh, and one of those books that I, I bought – it's available on Amazon digitally to read on the Kindle for 99 cents, 99 cents. Like, wow. 
how can you beat that? Right. And so I, I, I got it and I was like, okay, I'm going to read this later. Let me just check out the first couple pages. I read the whole thing. I mm-hmm. had some, I was going to go get myself something to eat. Uh, instead I sat there over the period of an hour and a half and I, I just devoured it. It was so, so good. The premise is this woman wakes up, uh, one morning she sees this young boy standing at the foot of her bed and she's like, what's this strange kid doing in my room? And then he jumps in bed, climbs up next to her and she like pushes him off the bed and the kid starts crying. Daddy, daddy, what's wrong with mommy? Her memories of her son have been extracted from her brain. And if you're a parent, you realize just how terrifying that is. So it's a bit of a suspense thriller about, you know, what happened to her, how it's resolved, all that sort of thing. But what the best thing about it is how much it subverts expectations on who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, guilt and love and emotion and all that sort of thing. It's, it's just really good. I can't recommend it highly enough. And then at the end, we touched on Spider-Man, the lost hunt, which has been announced as sort of the spiritual successor to Craven's last hunt, which Demetrius also wrote. Uh, he's getting a chance to explore the origins of Sergei Kravenov, Craven, the hunter uh, a little more. And just like the Ben Riley series that he recently did with uh, collaborator, David Baldione on art, this is set back in that time where Peter and Mary Jane were off in the Pacific Northwest. Ben Riley was Spider-Man because uh, Miles Warren had tricked them into thinking that Ben was the original and Peter was the clone. So we'll look for that later this year. We, we touch on that just real briefly. Um, but definitely JM is a fantastic interview. He's such an um, insightful and wonderful creator. So I encourage everybody to go. Uh, to go check out that interview. So Right on. That's good. Uh, well, we want to thank you guys for listening. As always, don't forget to head over to YouTube, subscribe to Rocky's channel, Comic Space Boom, exclamation point. Like, subscribe, comment. You guys know what to do. Uh, conversely, if you want to be sure you don't miss out on uh, any of the comic source audio-only content, like interviews with creators like uh, Demetrius, just go to wherever you get your podcast, do a search for the comic source, and subscribe. So uh, Rocky's Book of the Week, Flashpoint Beyond, uh, the conclusion, the sixth issue, mine is uh, Nightwing 97, heading up to 100, which is going to be a big issue. DC started re- uh, revealing all the covers. be interesting sure. to see if we get that wedding with... Uh, with yeah, that's right. Barbara. Not, not uh, like Batman 50. I hope they don't pull a, yeah. I hope they don't pull a Tom King on us. Uh, <laughs> Didio's not there anymore. I think they've learned their lesson. But uh, yeah, that being said, we thank you all for joining us as always. Tons of books this week. So glad you made it all to the end. And we'll talk to you next time. See you guys later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.